When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends, and welcome. To all of you returning listeners out there, so glad to have you back. Thank you for letting me join you for another year of Scripture study. And to any of you who might be new to the channel or podcast, I especially welcome you. If you end up liking what you learn here, be sure to hit that subscribe button and turn on notifications so you don't miss a thing. Now, by way of introduction, especially to you newcomers, my name is Jared Halverson, and this channel is called Unshaken. I started it almost three years ago, the day after an earthquake rocked Salt Lake City, leaving a lot of people around here pretty shaken up. So, Unshaken seemed like an appropriate title under the circumstances. Then again, I was a lot less concerned about the shaking of the earth, and more concerned about the shaking of faith that seems to be happening all around us. You see, I'm a religious educator by profession, and for the last oh, quarter century almost, man, I'm getting old, I've been teaching youth and young adults the Word of God. And seeing God's Word have its intended effect upon His children is incredible. But times seem to be changing, and people seem less and less interested in a serious study of the things of God. Faith is on the wane, and doubt and discouragement are on the rise, especially among the rising generation. Many of them say, oh, I'm spiritual, but not religious. But many others don't even claim to be spiritual. They claim to be secular instead, and as a result, it feels like we're losing something. Losing our grip on God, losing our sense of the sacred, losing a, a desire for the transcendent and the realization that there is something higher and holier that's beckoning us to climb. I want to change that as much as, as much as I can. And I don't know of anything with a greater potential to fortify faith and to steady and strengthen us spiritually than the Word of God as infused by the Spirit of God. So that's what we do here on Unshaken. We study Scripture. We, we go chapter by chapter and often verse by verse. We savor every sentence and turn over words and phrases to uncover the pearls of great price that are buried underneath. In the process, we find answers to our deepest questions. We find hope in the midst of adversity. We find meaning and purpose in life. We find God and we find each other and, a, and we find a greater desire to live those two great commandments of loving God and loving neighbor, re looking up and reaching out and striving to make a difference in the world. By way of background, just to show you around the place and let you know what we're, what we're up to here, it started in the spring of 2020. COVID was on everybody's mind, and it was shutting doors left and right, including the doors of my own classroom. At the time, I was teaching religion courses to students at the University of Utah, and all of a sudden, my students couldn't come anymore. There's nothing more heartrending than a teacher that has lost his class. But I lost all of mine and was scrambling to come up with a way to stay connected with my students and to help them stay connected with the Word of God. 
And so very tentatively, nervously, inadequately, and I was in way in over my head, I began filming lessons and posting them online with the hope that they would reach a few hundred students so that they could continue their study of the Word of God. Well, I seriously underestimated you. I had no idea there would be so many people out around the world who hunger and thirst after righteousness, to borrow the Savior's phrase, who wanted to immerse themselves in the Word of God in ways that they never have before. And yet, here you are. And it's amazing to me to see the interest out there in, in a verse-by-verse, in-depth study of Scripture. Like I said, that was three years ago, and now we're 11 million-plus YouTube views later, and five and a half million podcast downloads later. And it's not anything that I'm doing, because, because I have no production team. There's no marketing department. There's no advertising. There's no... There's no producer or director or content creator or, I mean, makeup and hair. I don't wear makeup. Thankfully, I still have hair. Wardrobe, it's just my white shirt and tie with sleeves rolled up so I can get to work with shoes off because I feel like I'm on sacred ground with you and with Scripture. And just a deep desire to, to connect with heaven through heaven's voice as found in Scripture. And, and you seem equally interested in doing the same. And so for every like and every share, for every comment and every review, you are spreading light in a world of increasing darkness. And all through word of mouth, this channel has grown to become a, a community of unshaken saints or those who are striving to be so. My own background has been deeply religious. I grew up as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My friends called me a Mormon. Uh, and yet I had so many friends of other faiths that I deeply respected and whose, whose beliefs I admired that I, am, I try to be as open-minded and open-hearted as, as I can be. And so any of you who belong to other faiths, we welcome you here as well, just so that we can study Scripture together. My circle of friends as a kid was incredibly diverse and incredibly devout religiously, which made for an amazing combination of kind of amazing conversations. Friends that were devout Catholics. I even got to speak at an interfaith event as a high school kid at a Catholic church, to have friends that were, were strong, strong born-again Christians. One friend from high school who is now a theology professor at Fuller Theological Seminary, and I am a, a religion professor at BYU, so we seem to be living parallel lives, uh, to have friends that were strong Jews, and a, a friend who was Hindu, and just to learn, learn from one another. Uh, I ended up serving a mission for my church in Puerto Rico, two years of teaching the gospel to incredible people and seeing its, its effect in their lives. I went, came home and graduated from Brigham Young University with a degree in history and focused on religious history as much as I could. I began teaching at that point and, and have never looked back since. And in the midst of it all, went to a Bible Belt Divinity School uh, at Vanderbilt in, in, in Nashville, Tennessee, to pursue advanced education, but feeling like I needed to learn as much as I could to be of use to my Father in Heaven. At Divinity School, it was amazing to be surrounded by people of other faiths, strong in their faith, obviously, as they're preparing for the ministry, but to learn together 
and rejoice together in the things that God had, had shared with us. During that time, I ended up earning a PhD in American religious history. And my area of emphasis, strange as it sounds, is anti-religious rhetoric. To study the things that people say, to rob one another of faith, to, to downplay beliefs, and to, to leverage whatever they can to try to remove people from beliefs and convictions they once held dear. Sadly, that education has become incredibly relevant to people as I work with them one-on-one -on -one around the world who are in the midst of faith crisis, who are wrestling with difficult questions and deep doubts uh, to understand where they're coming from and try to help them navigate the choices that they're making, especially those who long for faith but have a difficult time finding it. That will be one of my areas of emphasis as we continue to study scripture here on Unshaken, because that's my hope to help people find an unshaken faith, to help them navigate life's most difficult questions and find God, even when he's sometimes hard to hold on to. If these are things that interest you, if you're a person of faith who wants to deepen that faith, if you once were a person of faith and are looking to reclaim it, if you're seeking a reason for the hope that is in you or once was, then I hope you feel welcome here. And I'm glad to be able to share this time together on Unshaken. Now, for these past three years, we have been studying Scripture intensely. And we have been following a, an organized system. I've shared in the past some of the systems I've used over the years, one of which was to study a little bit of each of the standard works every day for an entire year in order to finish all the standard works within that year. If any of you are interested, I'm happy to share with you my schedule that I followed for several years with a little Old Testament, a little New Testament, a little Doctrine and Book of Mormon, a little Doctrine and Covenants, and a little Pearl of Great Price every single day. Those are the standard works of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And when I first started, we were at the beginning of the Book of Mormon year and ended up spending almost 100 hours that year in the Book of Mormon. Uh, last year we studied, or I guess two years ago now, uh, we studied the Doctrine and Covenants and 130 hours of content on that amazing book of Scripture. Last year we studied the Old Testament, cover to cover, and from Genesis to Malachi took us over 200 hours to be able to work our way through. But it was glorious. And this year we will study the New Testament. If everything last year was anticipatory, looking forward, looking ahead, then we find fulfillment in what we'll be studying this year. Because the Messiah has finally come, and Jesus is among us. And so with the help of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we will we'll follow Jesus around the streets of Jerusalem and the dusty roads of Judea. We will then move forward with the help of Paul and the apostles to see their incredible acts sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will dig deep theologically into the letters of Paul. Those ones will deserve a verse-by-verse -verse approach because they're so deep uh, and so powerful in trying to help us understand the doctrines of Jesus. Uh, we'll end this year studying the book of Revelation with all of its deep and fascinating symbolism. That will, will help us with a verse-by-verse -verse approach as well. Uh, can you tell I'm excited about this? Uh, the New Testament, I just finished a semester at BYU teaching the Gospels. And to see an, a, a batch of students come to know Jesus in ways they never have before, uh, 
to get their feedback at the end of the semester and just express their gratitude for the scripture we were able to study, so much of which they studied on their own. This week in Come Follow Me, the focus is on becoming our own, taking responsibility for our, our own learning. And I really wanted to push my students to do that. And so the challenge was a half an hour of serious study every single day to combine intensity with consistency in their scripture study, to be intensely consistent, don't miss a day, and consistently intense, to dig down. I, I challenged them, I, I didn't give them, uh, these are all the chapters you have to read at any given moment, and these are the outside readings that you need to do. I offered all of those as possibilities, but the focus for them was on their own learning. And so I challenged them to be a lot more like Moses, who we met last year, and to turn aside to see whenever a burning bush appears. That will happen frequently as you study your own scriptures. As you are poring over the pages, pay attention to words and phrases that seem to give a godly glow. That's your burning bush. And as was the case with Moses, it wasn't until he turned aside to see. He stopped what he was doing and focused his attention on this burning bush. And then and only then did the Lord begin to speak to him out of the midst of that fire. He will do the same for us as we study the New Testament, but it will take time on your part and mine to pause, to ponder, to pray, to write notes and underline phrases, to think harder. I suggest, I gave my students the recommendation to turn often to the kinds of resources that are all around us. One of my favorites online is a webpage called Bible Hub. And Bible Hub has as many different translations as you could ask for. And sometimes, as majestic as the King James Version is, sometimes if I'm confused, or again, if I see a burning bush and wonder, oh, there's, is there something deeper here that the Spirit's telling me to pause on and search for? Often, often I'll go to Bible Hub and read that same verse in as many different translations as I can. Many of the modern ones help me understand it better because the syntax and the grammar is more clear. Then once I have a better mental, intellectual understanding, I'll go back to the King James that then reinfuses it with that beautiful scriptural majesty that we're used to. Uh, on that same site there, you can look up Hebrew originals in the Old Testament or Greek originals in the New Testament. And you don't have to know Hebrew and Greek to make use of that kind of tool. But to be able to look up synonyms and additional definitions and is there deeper meaning in what was originally written on the page? There, is, there are sermons there and commentaries. There, is, there are so many amazing resources. And one of the things I assigned my students to do was whenever they found a burning bush, when they found something that either confused them or, or piqued their curiosity, turn aside to see, pull out your toolbox, and start taking apart that verse and putting it back together to be able to make better sense of it. They had amazing experiences. We called them biblical briefs, because then it was just a matter of almost like a legal brief. Just give me your best thoughts about this. And I loved in class, in the middle of a, of a, of a lesson, teaching something, and then a hand would raise, and, and they would say, oh, I actually did my biblical brief on that, on that verse. And I thought, oh, well, we have an expert among us. Please, please share. And they taught me things that I'd never learned before. I pray that you and I will have those kinds of experiences all year, from Matthew all the way to Revelation. And I testify they will come 
if we give God the opportunity to teach us. He will be the teacher here. I will do my best to get out of his way and to speak the words that come into mind and heart. I, I pray for that influence. I pray for that kind of experience. I pray for you and know that you pray for me and hope that you will learn and that you will teach, that you will come and receive, but also leave and share. Because so often the greatest insights come not just when your eyes are open on the page, but when your mouth is open to a son or daughter of God that needs something from heaven. It's amazing when God uses you to convey his message. And so open your mouth and let it be filled. I'm amazed at how often that happens to me. And I end up saying things that I did not prepare and did not know before. Even times when I'm video editing after the fact and I sit there looking at myself in the, in the screen, which is painful, and think, I, where did that come from? I never knew that before. And I find myself learning from the Spirit as I, as I watch myself. It's, it's an odd experience, believe me. With that in mind, though, can we turn to the New Testament and do so by returning to the Old Testament? I have two goals today, okay? And so we'll kind of split this lesson into two. And the first half, I want to focus on an introduction to the New Testament by way of the Old Testament. Now, I know that those of you who are longtime listeners just spent 200 hours with me in the Old Testament or thereabouts. And some of you might be thinking, oh, I thought we were leaving it behind. Well, we can't. Because the Old Testament is foundational scripture for the New Testament. If you ever watched a sequel without watching the original, you know that you're missing something. You're on the outside of inside jokes. You don't know characters. Uh, and, and there's so much of what's happening under the surface that you would only recognize if you had seen the first movie before you saw the second. There is so much of our understanding of the New Testament that depends on our understanding of the Old. And so I want to do at least a brief review of some things in the Old Testament that will highlight characters and, and moments in the New Testament that will be key to our understanding. And then the second half of what I want to do, because this first half is going to be very historical. Uh, we won't, we're not going to be in the New Testament. Uh, we're going to be talking from the Old Testament towards the New Testament. So it's going to be more of a historical lesson. But the second half, I want to be scriptural, but we're not yet in the New Testament. And so we're going to be talking about the intertestamental period, which is the period between, that's what inter means, between the Testaments, intertestamental. What took place historically between Malachi and Matthew that helps us make sense of what's going on once we come to, the, to Matthew chapter 1 next week. Uh, to do that, we're going to be using the Apocrypha, which is a fun word to say. It means hidden writing, and it's in some people's Bibles, and it's not in other people's Bibles. It's their books of Scripture that have been argued over and wonder, should it be canonical or not? And we're going to be spending time in First and Second Maccabees, uh, which I reread uh, in preparation for this lesson. Fascinating things there. And so we're going to have some scripture in the second half of our lesson, but from apocryphal books that will help us navigate the roughly 400 years between Malachi and Matthew. Okay, does that make sense? So if you want to roll up your sleeves to get ready for work, if you want to take your shoes off to be on holy ground, then let us turn to the task ahead. And I pray that it will be work 
that is sweet and that brings us the sweet spirit of God. Now, I want to introduce you to the concept by introducing you to my two mission presidents. They were amazing. And both of them and their wives had profound effects upon my life. Uh, to introduce you to my first one, I, I had a year with each, okay? And my first mission president was a big barrel-chested Texan who ran the church's cattle ranches before he was called to be a mission president. And he didn't change a whole lot when he was shifted from, from cattle to missionaries. Uh, we, we loved him, but we kind of feared him. He was an intimidating guy. Uh, every once in a while, he'd bring his bullwhip to his own conference and crack it when he was talking about uh, obedience. Can you picture a Moses doing something similar from Sinai? Because in a way, it was laying an Old Testament foundation before a New Testament fulfillment. That first mission president taught us to obey and taught us that before you can even begin to sacrifice, you have to lay a foundation of obedience for, beforehand. Now, the irony of all of this was our second mission president, my second mission president, was, was the exact opposite. He was not a big barrel-chested Texan. He was a very diminutive little Latino, uh, full of love, uh, a humble, soft-spoken man, and, and he just wanted us to, to love, love the Lord. Now, I remember when he was first called and he came, and I was among other leaders in the mission, and... And he was talking about, well, we don't, I don't, I want to get rid of some of these other additional rules and things. And, and we were, we were concerned. We're like, oh, Presidente, uh, the missionary is going to walk all over you. you. You can't remove that apparatus. It's what keeps everybody in line. Did, did you bring a bullwhip with you to the mission? And, and he said, no, 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 they'll still obey. And we thought, well, why? If there's no expectation, well, there's always an expectation. He said, they'll just obey out of love. And and we thought, I hope you're not overestimating us. Well, he wasn't. And it was amazing to see the mission continue to be incredibly obedient. I mean, because of what our first mission president did, I honestly think we were one of the most obedient missions in the whole world. I compared no, I've compared notes with a lot of return missionaries out there. And, and it was amazing what that first mission president was able to accomplish. I don't think the second mission president could have done what he did without the foundation having been laid beforehand. But there were some missionaries who didn't understand that. And some who thought the, the first regime uh, was, was too strict. And the irony of it all was that our second mission president, his first name was Jesus. It's a good, a, a common la a first name in, among Spanish speakers. And it's Jesus in Spanish. And so some old missionaries would joke, oh, I guess we survived the, the, the law of Moses and are now prepared for the gospel of Jesus. And yet little did they realize just how important that law of Moses was and that without it, there wouldn't have been an opportunity to fully live the gospel of Jesus the way that we did. In fact, I remember hearing from my mission president after we'd all come home that the need for us to be obedient, to be proactive, to have initiative, to not require so much supervision was absolutely essential for the history of the church in Puerto Rico, where we served. You see, before I got there, as my first mission president was getting underway, Elder El Tom Perry of the Quorum of the Twelve came to Puerto Rico to dissolve one of the four stakes that was there. Now, to dissolve a stake doesn't happen very often. It's moving in the wrong direction. 
It's taking, it was taking one stake and dissolving it into two mission districts that would be under the responsibility and supervision of the mission president himself. Not just the missionaries, the members. Now, when Elder Perry came to the island and started interviewing people and seeing how things were going, he realized there was more work to be done than just that. He called President Hinckley and said, I'm here in Puerto Rico to dissolve one of the stakes. I really feel like I'm supposed to dissolve all four and just start this mission all over again under the mission president's supervision. Am I allowed to do that? And President Hinckley said, well, you're an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do what you feel is necessary. And overnight, there were no more stakes on the island. Overnight, the mission president went from being responsible for 200 missionaries to now being responsible for all the members in the mission as well. And he told us after the fact, there would have been no way for him to accomplish what needed to be done on the member side if the missionaries had not yet learned strict obedience. He was willing to take a hit as far as reputation of being strict so that we could lay the foundation that upon which the church could be built. And that's exactly what happened going from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The Old Testament gets <laughs> a bad reputation. And I hope that last year's study of it changed all of that for you. When Jesus will come in the pages of the, of the New Testament, he will say, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. The Old Testament has laid that foundation. I sometimes worry even that we call it the law of Moses because poor Moses probably didn't want to get stuck with that. In fact, I know he didn't. Remember the Doctrine and Covenants, section 84? Moses sought diligently to sanctify his people that they might behold the face of God. He was ready for the gospel. He was ready for the promised land. He was trying to drag people in even though they weren't yet ready for it. I picture him saying, don't, don't name it after me. <laughs> I was ready for more. And yet here we have this law of Moses that prepared people. In fact, it got them to the promised land, though it couldn't get them into it. We talked about this a little last year, and so just quick review. In your mind, picture the, this chart with two columns. For those of you who are watching, I'll show it to you myself. On one side put the Old Testament, and on the other side put the New Testament. And under Old, put Moses' name. He becomes our poster boy for the Old Testament. Okay, But under the New Testament, put Joshua's name. Now, wait a minute. Wasn't he an Old Testament prophet? Yes. But his name is the same name that Mary and Joseph gave to this miracle child. His name was Yeshua. We call him Jesus. And if Moses brought the children of Israel right to the banks of the Jordan River to, to, cry, to get out of bondage, to make their way through their wilderness wanderings and get as close to the promised land as they could, that's what the Old Testament does. Opening the way for a Joshua, a Yeshua, a Jesus to then cross the water, to help us in to get us where we need to go. On the same chart, you could put law under the Old Testament, and you could put gospel under the New. You, in a way, you could put works in the Old Testament column and grace in the New Testament column. Though, as I hope you remember, we saw grace infusing the pages of the Old Testament too. 
And we'll see works infusing the pages of the new. This is James, faith without works is dead. And we could say New Testament without Old Testament is dead as well. You could even put justice and mercy on, on these columns. And justice leads the way in the Old Testament, though it, has, it is permeated with mercy as well. And in the New Testament, the focus is on mercy, though it is underwritten by justice every step of the way. To see these two books and how they work together is, is essential here. Because there's a problem that I hope that we will overcome. The problem, the sin, if we can call it that, is the sin of supersessionism. And it's one that Christians seem to be guilty of. Because often Christians will look back at Judaism and think, ah, oh, you missed it. You missed your Messiah. And as a result, the, the keys of the kingdom were passed from Judaism to Christianity. And yet, as we saw at the end of last week's lesson, 2 Nephi 29, remember this? That we better appreciate the house of Israel, God's ancient covenant people, whom God has not forgotten and never will. We must not forget the labors and travails and pains of the Jews in bringing forth salvation unto us through the pages of the Old Testament. Remember that? That is so key for us. Otherwise, we just leave Judaism behind and think that they've, they've missed the boat and therefore are no longer needed. And that's not true. Now, if Christians are guilty often of the sin of supersessionism, for Latter-day Saint Christians, it's even worse. Because we are often guilty of the sin of what I call super-duper-sessionism. Because of our understanding of apostasy and the need for restoration, we sometimes think not only was Judaism superseded, but historical Christianity was superseded as well. And so all we need now is the restored gospel. And we seem to lose sight of the importance of the Old and New Testament, the biblical base upon which the restoration was built. We can't afford to do that. In some ways, tragically, we've reversed that verse in 2 Nephi 29. And instead of saying, a Bible, a Bible, we already have a Bible, we don't need another one. We end up saying, oh, a Book of Mormon, a Book of Mormon. We already have a Book of Mormon, we don't need another Book of Mormon. Well, we do. We need the Bible. And these companion sets of Scripture, meant to become one in our hand, will introduce us to, to the God who is at work throughout them all. Don't believe me? Go back to Jacob 5 that allegory of the olive tree. And the focus there seems to be on fruit, that God is trying everything he can with these trees to bring forth fruit. That would be Christian converts. That would be preparing people for the coming of Christ. The, the fruits meet for repentance. And yet, as important as fruit is in Jacob 5, root is just as important as well. In fact, if you were to just look for roots in Jacob chapter 5, you would see that word in verse 8, 11, 18, 34, 35, 36, 37, 48, 53, 54, 59, 60, 65, and 66. Obvious enough yet? Take just one example, verse 36. Nevertheless, I know that the roots are good. And those roots are Jewish roots. Those roots are Old Testament roots. And even as the Lord is striving to bring forth righteous fruit, he is also trying to preserve righteous root and bring all of his covenant people, Jews and Christians and everyone they reach, 
God cares about all of his children, wherever they might be, whatever their religious background or irreligious background. And so to base what we do on the old uh, in the New Testament on what we've learned from the Old Testament is absolutely essential. We need to take our, that so-called replacement theology, the supersessionism or super-dupersessionism that, le- that has left so much behind, and replace replacement with remnant. If there was one thing we talked about often last year. It was the promise that a righteous remnant would remain and that a righteous remnant would return. If you look at the New Testament, there's a, there's a righteous remnant. There, Jesus was a Jew. The apostles were all Jewish. Their scripture was Hebrew Bible. It was Old Testament. And as they strived to live it, that's where the New Testament begins to emerge. This is still a Jewish book with so much Jewish background that we need to understand. So let me share one verse from the New Testament that might help tie these two books of Scripture together and help us pay homage to the Old Testament that we've just finished studying as we prepare ourselves for the New Testament that lies ahead. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And in it, Paul is teaching these Corinthian saints about the New Testament, the gospel of Jesus Christ, I should say. The New Testament has yet to be assembled. But the gospel and how it is based on what came before it. So 2 Corinthians 3, look at 7 and 8, and then we'll jump ahead to verse 11. But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious... And what he means by this, he's talking about the law of Moses, the the stone tablets. When he says engraven in stones, there's the the tablets of the Ten Commandments. And God wrote upon them with his own finger. And yet here Paul calls that the ministration of death. Now, death only relatively speaking. Death because it didn't give them life in the promised land. It only got them close to it. But it prepared the way for what was to come. And here, despite it being death comparatively speaking... Paul still calls it glorious. But then he says, if that was glorious, in fact, so glorious that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance. Remember that? When Moses comes down with the tablets of the law, his face was so aglow with God. This was like an Old Testament transfiguration that he put a veil over his face just so people could handle his presence. That's the glory of the law of Moses. And that's what Paul is calling our attention to. And if the law, if the Old Testament was that glorious, that it had to be veiled, and then he says, which glory was to be done away, that was to be fulfilled in a New Testament gospel, then how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? Jump ahead to 11 and he sums it up. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. What he's saying there is, if you thought the Old Testament was incredible, then buckle up and prepare yourself for the study of a lifetime. Because Old Testament was preparation. And New Testament will be fulfillment. But don't forget that the old was glorious. We've got to hold on to them both. In fact, that's one of the great gifts of the restoration. Is it does bring us back to our biblical beliefs from both New and Old Testament hand in hand. 
uh, just quickly, there, there was a woman named Jan Ships, amazing Methodist historian. But her area of emphasis, her specialization, was on the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and its other, its other break-offs and offshoots. Uh, she was a Mormon scholar who happened to be a member of the Methodist Church. But one of the things that she pointed out that we might have been blind to within the church was that one of the great projects of the Restoration was not just to restore New Testament Christianity. Other people were doing that at the same time Joseph Smith was attempting to. The great thing that Joseph Smith accomplished was to restore Old Testament House of Israel right along with it. It's as if Joseph was thinking, yeah, New no, we need to restore the whole thing. It's the same God and the same covenant. And whether it's anticipa anticipation or fulfillment, it's all part of God's saving work. And we are here to re restore the whole thing. In fact, you want another chart? <laughs> this one. Put Judaism on one side and Christianity on the other. In fact, it reminds me of a story. When I was at Divinity School, I've shared this with some of you. Uh, I was sitting in a class waiting for it to begin. I was there early, and two other students were too. One was Catholic and one was Protestant. So a Catholic, a Protestant, and a Latter-day Saint walk into a Divinity School classroom together. Sound like the beginning of a good joke? And as we were waiting for the rest of the students and the professor to come, we started talking about religion, of all things. The Catholic girl turned to me and said, How, where do you, you Latter-day Saints, where do you Mormons fit in? I mean, you're, you're not Catholic, so does that make you Protestant? And the Protestant boy turns back and says, well, well what, he's, not, he's not one of us. It was like playing hot potato. Like, who, who, neither one wanted the Latter-day Saints. Okay? And I laughed and said, no, no, it's okay. Um, we're neither one. But if the two of you got married and had a kid, it would look a lot like me. And they kind of looked at each other like, well, we don't even like each other. Well, I know, Catholic and Protestant never seem to get along. Uh, but if you took the two and combine them. This is a proving of contraries like I always talk about. The restored gospel of Jesus Christ combines the high liturgy of Catholicism, the symbolism and ritual, that's our temple side, with the low liturgy of much of Protestantism. That's the preaching side. That's the chapel church side of things. And then I said to them, I could say the same about Judaism and Christianity. And this is what I'm getting at with our combination of restoring Old Testament and New Testament together. If a Jew and a Christian came together, were married and had a child, it would look a lot like the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. And from our, so here back to our chart, okay, as we're seeing uh, how do, this dual inheritance. From, the, from Judaism, we inherit the Old Testament. Thank you for your labors and pains and travails. From the Christianity, we inherit the New Testament. And there's plenty of labor and pain and travail on that side as well. On the Jewish side, we have tabernacles and temples. We're still building them and worshiping there to this day. And from the Christian side, we have chapels and churches. From the Jewish side, we, we have prophets. And from the Christian side, we have apostles. And in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints today, we are still led by prophets and apostles of God. Our patriarchal blessings are part of our Jewish inheritance. And the gifts of the Spirit are part of our Christian inheritance. From the Jewish side, we are members of the House of Israel. And from the Christian side, we are members of the body of Christ. From our Old Testament roots, we engage in the gathering of Israel on both sides of the veil. And from our Christian roots, we engage in the preaching of the gospel, just like the ancient apostles did. It's incredible to combine these two and to understand what the Lord is trying to accomplish as both Old and New Testament come together, 
it's the same covenant, and that's what testament means. It's an old covenant that has been renewed through Jesus Christ. And still to this day, it is a new, but also an everlasting covenant that God intends to keep. If you think about what Jeremiah prophesied, what Ezekiel prophesied, it was an internalization of the principles that God had taught through Moses. Remember Jeremiah's words? I'm going to give you a new covenant. This, this is Jeremiah 31, verse 33. This shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts. I'll write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And then Ezekiel said something similar. Chapter 11, verse 19. I will give them one heart and will put a new spirit within you. I will take the stony heart out of their flesh and will give them an heart of flesh. So there's something about internalizing these things. Let's take them off the stone tablets and put them into, the, into our hearts. In fact, that's what Paul was getting at also in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3. Same chapter that we looked at earlier about glorious Old Testament and glorious New. In 2 Corinthians 3.3, he says that the law would be written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. Can you hear echoes of Ezekiel in that? Can you hear shades of Jeremiah there? It's not just that the tablets were hard. It's that your heart is. And so let's... Let me show you what this looks like. Let me take all of the principles I taught you in the pages of the Old Testament and embody them in the gift of my Son. And as Jesus comes into the world, condescends to come among us. This is the Word made flesh that we'll meet in John chapter 1 in a couple of weeks. And he comes to show us what the Old Testament looks like when it's actually lived to perfection. The principles on those pages are life-giving. But since we couldn't quite live up to them, we turn to Jesus Christ and find our life in Him. But it's Old Testament principles He's teaching as they become new in Him and new on the pages of the New Testament. So have we done justice to the work that we put in last year? All that wonderful preparation? Have we, have we done our due diligence in the, in the Old Testament, so that we're ready for the new? Have we paid the required respect to the house of Israel and thanked our Jewish brothers and sisters for all that they've done to give us the Old Testament as now we turn a page and begin studying the new? Now, we're soon to look to that sequel, okay? But especially for you who might not have spent enough time in the Old, or if you're new to the New Testament and not, haven't had this Jewish background, then can we do at least a quick summary of some of the things we studied last year that will make all the difference for our study this year? I mean, believe me, when I was at Divinity School, one of my professors was a Jewish New Testament scholar. Now, wrap your head around that. She's Jewish. She does not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. But her area of, of specialization was New Testament. Now, that actually makes more sense than I first thought when I met her. Because the New Testament is a Jewish book, too. 
it is rooted in the Old Testament. Jesus and everyone who wrote in the New Testament, Paul, uh, excuse me, Luke was a Gentile. Okay, so we'll allow Luke and Acts to be Gentile books. And they had a Gentile audience as well. But everything else is Jewish through and through. And, and so for her to bring her Judaism to the table as she opened the New Testament, it was incredible to see someone who, could, who recognized all the things from the, the first movie in the sequel. And someone who could, someone who knows the inside jokes, someone who knows the culture and sees that culture infusing the parables Jesus taught, the interactions he had. And so let's do a, a 30,000 foot flyover of the Old Testament. I actually found an amazing timeline by way of depiction on the internet. And so if you're watching this, I'll show it to you. Uh, for those that are listening in on the podcast, I'll try to explain it to you. But in one kind of line drawing, it is a timeline of the Old Testament that is, it's amazing to kind of see big picture in, in one scene. Now, let me walk you through it. It begins with creation, the Garden of Eden, and Adam and Eve that are there. We next see the city of Enoch caught up to heaven, uh, original Zion that we were trying to build ever since. We next see Noah and the flood, the ark that preserves people, and then we hit the Tower of Babel and the, the confusion of the languages. Now, right on the heels of that, we're only 10 chapters into Genesis so far, but then we meet three absolutely important figures, and they are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. Make sure that you remember the matriarchs right alongside them. But they then grow into the house of Israel. Jacob becomes Israel, and his 12 sons become the 12 tribes. Now, you meet Jake, uh, Joseph, Jacob's second to, to last son, and he, he is sold into Egypt by his brothers. And then the brothers follow him to Egypt eventually, where they are preserved through a period of famine. Unfortunately, that ends up culminating in 400 years of Egyptian bondage. And not until Moses comes are the tribes of Israel able to be set free. Moses crosses the Red Sea with them. He brings them to Mount Sinai and receives these glorious tablets of the law. But as he comes to the Promised Land, the people have more fear than faith and end up wandering for the next 40 years in the wilderness. After those 40 years of wilderness wanderings are done, however, they're back at the banks of the Jordan, and this time they are able to cross it with the help of a Joshua and a Caleb. Next, we see the conquest of Canaan uh, as the walls of Jericho come a-tumbling down. But after that conquest, we then are introduced to the period of Judges. Now, so far, we have plowed through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua and Judges. And next we get these massive historical books, but we can focus them on three kings. Three kings of united Israel. And so next on our timeline, we see Saul, David, and Solomon. Uh, above the crown of Solomon, we see the temple because that's what he is most famous for. But then for the rest of the Old Testament, what we see is a divided kingdom with a kingdom of Israel in the north, 10 tribes up there, and a kingdom of Judah in the south. And those two kingdoms have separated. What happens next then, the northern kingdom is scattered by the Assyrian Empire, and the southern kingdom is taken captive by the Babylonian Empire. Once the Babylonians are replaced by the Persians, the Persians allow them to go home, We've just passed through Daniel in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. But when the Persians come and say, you're allowed to return, we then see three letters on our page, Z-E-N, 
and they're not feeling Zen here. Well, maybe they are. But the Z stands for Zerubbabel, he'll rebuild the temple. The E stands for Ezra, he'll re-enthrone the law and scripture. And the N stands for Nehemiah, which will help rebuild, who will help rebuild the city walls to protect Jerusalem again. We then meet Malachi, the final prophet of the Old Testament, and then 400 years pass without prophets until the coming of Christ. Now, how's that for a, a quick synopsis of the Old Testament? It took us 200 hours to study it last year. I think that maybe took 200 seconds, give or take. But as you, as you zoom out and see the Old Testament in its entirety, there are a few figures and certain time periods that we need to pack up and bring with us into the pages of the New Testament. I'll give you a few examples. We need to remember Abraham because, boy, the Jews will. When they talk with Jesus, they will pit him against, they'll compare him to Abraham. And Jesus will bring up Abraham himself as backup. Uh, so religiously, Abraham casts a long shadow into the pages of the New Testament. He is the father of the faith. To him, you could add Jacob as the, that, the leader of the house of Israel. And so often you will see the Jews in Jesus's day focusing on this spiritual pedigree that they have. Uh, they'll say, we're of Abraham. We're house of Israel. It's us versus them. It's Jew versus Gentile. If you remember last year when we saw what Abraham was told by the Lord, in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. By the time you get to the New Testament, so many of these, the Jewish house of Israel will focus on the first half of that statement. In thee and in thy seed. We are the chosen people. It will be Jesus that re-emphasizes the second half. Well, what about in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. What, what, is that happening? Are we reaching out? Because Jesus will. He will invite others into this family of faith. And we'll especially see that second half of the New Testament once Paul begins to preach. So hold on to Abraham and Jacob religiously. Now hold on to Moses legislatively. If Abraham and Jacob cast a long spiritual shadow as far as Jewish identity, religious identity is concerned, from Moses they will receive their law. And they are serious about living it, especially people like Pharisees. Okay? We'll see Jesus and the Pharisees lock horns frequently over their interpretation of what Moses meant to accomplish. And so you've got to bring Moses with you as you go from Old Testament to New. Politically, you should also bring David. Because David was oh, politically the hero of Judaism. When Jesus comes in on the triumphal entry, what will they call him? The son of David. What kind of a Messiah are they expecting? A Davidic one. One that can restore the kingdom to the Jews and cast out these Romans as they suffer under the imperial thumb. Okay, And so David is one that we'll, we'll need to bring with us as far as high messianic hopes are concerned. You can bring Solomon as well, but not so much for Sol who Solomon was, but rather the building that Solomon constructed. Because the temple will loom large in the pages of the New Testament as well. The temple that Solomon built that was destroyed by the Babylonians, rebuilt by Zerubbabel, and then expanded by Herod the Great. The temple that Jesus would claim as his father's and later claim as his own the temple that Jesus would cleanse, the temple that Jesus would make the base of his operations whenever he was in Jerusalem, teaching there on sacred space. 
So if we can bring those Old Testament figures with us, then the New Testament will make more sense. Now, not just the figures, though. Three major events near the end of the Old Testament are things that we need to bring with us as well. So let me, let me hit on these three briefly, uh, and then we'll see some more big picture things as far as what leads us historically into the New Testament. Those three events are the scattering of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians, the destruction of the southern kingdom by the Babylonians, and the return to Jerusalem under the Persians. So three world empires that we have to hold on to, their memory at least, as we move to the New Testament. The reason that the first one is so important, when the Assyrians come and destroy the northern kingdom, their game plan, as we learned last year, was to scatter, to shuffle the deck and rearrange all of their conquered peoples. That way most people aren't on their, in their homeland anymore and are less likely to fight to regain it. In fact, we'll even dilute their identity by combining conquered peoples so that they intermix and intermingle and end up intermarrying so that there's not the same sense of identity that they once had. That's what's happening in the Northern Kingdom. That's what's happening to the lost 10 tribes. Now, why is that important for the New Testament? Well, on the one hand, because Israel has been scattered, we now have a Jewish diaspora, it's called. The scattering of the Jews all over the known world. And that's going to be incredibly important, especially second half of the New Testament, as Paul and the apostles are going out on these missionary journeys. Because as Jews themselves, themselves, they typically began teaching fellow Jews in synagogues all over the Roman Empire. And so that is, thanks to the Assyrians, there are Jews all over the place. And you can begin there by teaching them that the fulfillment of the Jewish Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, is now found in Jesus. So thank you, Assyrians, for, for leavening the lump, in a way, and scattering this, this remnant that God will then begin to draw back into the faith. Fascinating how that works. The other part of the Assyrian inheritance that we need to hold on to when we get to the New Testament is the Samaritans. Now, in the New Testament, we'll meet Samaritans often. There will be a good Samaritan that Jesus tells a story about, and that will be shocking to a Jewish audience. Because as far as a good self-respecting Jew is concerned, there's no such thing as a good Samaritan. You should never put those two words together in a sentence unless it's one like good riddance to those nasty Samaritans. Because what's a Samaritan? It's a Jewish half-breed as far as the Jews were concerned. When Assyria came in and scattered Israel, they left some Jews behind. Well, not Jews, Israelites. They left some Israelites behind, but then as other conquered peoples were moved in to mix with them, that's the, the origin story of the Samaritans. And for the Jews, they looked at them down their noses and thought, you are not full-blooded Israelites like we are. And so you have nothing to do with us. When, when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well, their whole conversation is based on what we should remember from the Old Testament and the conflict, the friction within the family between Jews and Samaritans. So hold on to that one. Second major event is the destruction of the southern kingdom by the Babylonians. And what ends up happening there, if you're dragged out of your homeland and brought into foreign territory, the foreigners leave some fingerprints on you. One of those would be linguistic. There is a decline of Hebrew and a rise of Aramaic as they're off in, in a different speaking nation. And by the time Jesus and the apostles come onto the scene, they're speaking Aramaic. 
Okay, so there's some, some major changes there. But beyond that, with the destruction of the temple, that changes everything. Because that's the that's sacred space. That's the center of Jewish worship, and therefore the center of Jewish religious life and identity. And it's gone. We're not even in the promised land anymore. Can God keep his promises elsewhere? They're dragged off to Babylon. They spend 70 years there. But without the temple, the loss of the temple leads to the rise of the synagogue. Is that going to be important in the New Testament? You better believe it. Now, again, by the New Testament, you have the temple again, but you also have the synagogues still standing firm and strong. And so often Jesus will teach in both of those places. We'll see in the pages of Luke, for example, he goes back to his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. All those missionaries, apostles, teaching in synagogues, like I already said. In fact, without a temple, thanks to the Babylonians, there is a, there's no chance, there's no place to offer ritual sacrifice. So it's not just the loss of the temple and the rise of the synagogue. It's the loss of ritual sacrifice and the rise of the study of the law. Scripture becomes much more important post-Babylonian captivity. Because that's what they've been able to hold on to. The temple isn't portable and it's no longer present. But the scriptures, those scrolls, we can bring with us. And so they begin studying scripture like never before. Uh, how do you worship? It's no longer about animal offerings. It's now about studying the word of God. And that is something that is going to carry through in the pages of the New Testament as well. And again, it's Old Testament that they're studying. Then that third time, that third period, the Persian period, as they return to Jerusalem, how does that affect the pages of the New Testament? Well, number one, the temple is rebuilt. And like I said, King Herod the Great will expand upon it incredibly. Uh, and that will become a major place of focus in the New Testament. And then take Ezra, for example, as Ezra returns, he is known as Ezra the scribe. And do you meet scribes in the New Testament? All over the place. Uh, do you meet Pharisees in the New Testament? All over the place. In fact, so many of the cast of characters you meet in the pages of the New Testament grow out of Babylonian exile and Persian return. I'll even just let me give you an example of, of Pharisees and Sadducees, for example. Uh, the Sadducees were focused on the temple. So thank you, Zerubbabel, for rebuilding it. Thank you, Persians, for letting us come home. And the Sadducees were more of the upper-class Jewish leaders. They, they focused on the, the work of God in the temple precincts. And so they would come head-to-head -head with Jesus in those kinds of areas. Meanwhile, the Pharisees have more of, uh, of an Ezra to thank for their identity. Their focus is on obedience to the law. And they're more middle-class uh, Jews. They are known for their piety, their obedience, their strictness to the law. Uh, and that rises during the Babylonian time period because that's all we've got is the law. We can't do temple sacrifice anymore. So temple versus synagogue, think, this is a bit of an overgeneralization, but it's helpful. Think Sadducees versus Pharisees. Uh, as far as the written law itself, think scribes. Uh, in the temple, think Levites and priests and a high priest, because those still factor in the life of Jesus as well. When he is tried by Annas and Caiaphas, those are, that's high priest that he's facing.
in the parable of the Good Samaritan. It is a priest and a Levite that pass on the other side. Are you getting a sense of just how much the Old Testament casts its shadow over the New? And we need to know our Old Testament to make sense of what we have in the New Testament. Now, one last thing to say in this first half before we turn to the Apocrypha. And this, again, has to do with what New Testament Jews are up against once Jesus comes onto the scene. And this has everything to do with what we are going through in our own personal experience today. This I want to describe as an age of empires. Uh, we first meet a world superpower in Exodus when the, Jews are, when, the Jew, when the Hebrews are slaves in Egypt. And Egypt just crushing these people as slaves. But once they're freed and come into their own in the land of promise, then the ages of the age of empires that, that Judaism has to endure are, as already described, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians. Next you meet the Greeks, and finally you meet the Romans. And it's the Romans, the first three, Assyria, Babylon, and Persia, are in the Old Testament. The fourth, the Greek Empire, is in the intertestamental period, the part we don't have scripture for. And then the fifth, the Roman Empire, is on the scene once you open Matthew. And Jesus and his fellow Jews are living under the shadow of the Roman Empire. Okay? Now, what to understand, in fact, all of this is in the book of Daniel. It's all prophesied by Daniel. When Nebuchadnezzar had his dream, what did he see in vision? This, this or in dream, he saw this statue. And the head of gold represented the Babylonian Empire. The chest and arms of silver represented the Persian Empire. The belly and thighs of bronze represented the Greek Empire. And the legs of iron represented the Roman Empire. Uh, if you go down far enough and it splits off into ten toes mixed of iron and clay. And so there's the divided nations that follow in the wake of the, the downfall of the Roman Empire. But those main empires are depicted in that, in that dream. Now, fast forward a few chapters, and Daniel has his own dream with different images, but same basic story of these, this age of empires. In Daniel 7, he sees a lion with eagle's wings. That's Babylon. He then sees a bear with ribs in its mouth, finishing his meal. That's Persia. He then sees a leopard with wings and four heads. That's Greece. And then a terrible beast, unlike anything seen before, has iron teeth and ten horns. And that's Rome. And to see how Jewish life changes through the midst of these different empires until you get to the times of Jesus in the New Testament and understand just how hard it is to be a faithful, covenant-keeping member of the House of Israel. Now, I'll walk you through what each empire did to make life difficult in just a moment. But let me spend a few minutes on the, Greece, on the, on the Greek Empire. Okay, because that's going to carry us through. That's the one that we don't get scripture on. Okay, at least not what we have canonized for us. So let me introduce you or reintroduce you to Alexander the Great, the incredible Greek general who becomes emperor of the known world. He has overcome the Persian Empire to do it. Okay? Often when I depict this for my students, I'll talk about a little fish that gets gobbled up by a bigger fish, but then there's a bigger fish behind it and a yet bigger fish behind it, and it's these dominoes falling as one empire is gobbled up by the next. Well, the Greek Empire gobbles up the Persian Empire, and as Alexander is taking his armies east, he ends up going through Palestine, through Judea. 
and, and he's not too friendly with the Jews. Because if you remember, the Persians were friendly with the Jews. You can go home. You can rebuild your temple. And feeling some measure of gratitude, when the Persians and the Greeks started to fight, the Jews were on the Persian side. Well, obviously, Alexander the Great doesn't feel very good about that. So he's coming through and conquering the, the Middle East. He's conquering the land of Judea. And yet, as he's about to reach Jerusalem, he has a dream. And according to the ancient sources, Alexander's dream, in, in it he sees the high priest in Jerusalem wearing his priesthood garments and is so awe, in awe of all of this that when he finally reaches Jerusalem and sure enough sees the high priest just as he'd seen him in, in his dream, sees him arrayed in this sacred, these sacred vestments, instead of doing harm to the Jews, he ends up worshiping right alongside them. Uh, uh, by the way, these same sources speak of the high priest having a similar dream where he meets Alexander and he, he's supposed to be wearing these priesthood robes. Good thing he dressed appropriately. Uh, and, and it ended up saving the day. In fact, even some of the priests in Jerusalem showed Alexander the pages of the book of Daniel that speak of the coming of a Greek empire. Uh, this, this animal is you and you're gobbling up the enemy. And it's like, oh, wow, you, you thought of me in advance. I'm, I'm honored. In a way, this is like Isaiah prophesying of Cyrus. And, and that helps the Jews return under Persian rule. Well, this prophecy of Daniel helps the Jews survive the coming of, of Alexander the Great. But as good as Alexander was, things went south as soon as his generals took his place. You see, with the death of Alexander the Great, there wasn't a clear succession plan. And so this massive empire ends up basically getting divided between his generals. And, and the two that stand out, they, they are, they're called the Seleucids in the north and the Ptolemies, that's spelled with a P-T, the Ptolemies in the south. When I try to help my students learn these things to prepare for their exams, I say that Seleucids in Syria, there's the S sound, and then Ptolemies in Egypt, there's the PT sound. Okay, is that, is that a good enough mnemonic device? Uh, and as the kingdom is divided north-south, Seleucids versus Ptolemies, right in the middle, caught between kingdoms as usual, is Judea. Now for a time, everything was fine. But then, ultimately, there, become, there comes a new king named Antiochus IV. And he's the one that is going to, to color the pages of the books of Maccabees. He's named Antiochus IV, but he takes upon himself the nickname Antiochus Epiphanes. And an epiphany is God being made manifest. And so to take that name, like, hey, you want to see God? You're looking at him. Now, the Jews had a nickname for him, a play on words. They didn't call him... Antiochus Epiphanes. Behind his back, they called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means Antiochus the crazy, the madman, Antiochus the insane. When, king, when, when, when Thomas Paine was making fun of King George III during the American Revolution, he called him Your Majesty, spelled M-A-D-J-E-S-T-Y, to poke fun at George III's mental illness. Well, the Jews were doing something similar with with Antiochus IV, uh, because they thought he was crazy for all the things that he was doing, basically to make Judaism an illegal religion and force the Greek pantheon upon the people of Judea instead. Those were incredibly difficult times. 
to maintain faith. And that's the story that we'll see when we turn to the scripture of the intertestamental period, which are the books of Maccabees. I want you to understand something, though, that's happening during this time period, during the reign of Alexander and the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, during the Greek intertestamental period. The word is Hellenization, and what it means is the spread of Greek culture. Greek language, Greek philosophy, Greek entertainment, Greek sporting events, you name it. It's, it's almost like American culture you can find everywhere. Corporate America is, and, and, and Hollywood, you name it. Sports now are, are spreading across the globe with, with an American epicenter. Uh, American culture is, is almost everywhere you can see. And some countries and cultures try to resist that as much as possible, and that's a hard thing to do. Well, the same thing was happening during the Greek period. And this Hellenization of, of the known world was beginning to change everything, including the way Jews saw themselves and practiced their religion. I'll give you a few examples. One was linguistic. Like we saw the rise of Aramaic, thanks to the Babylonian captivity, we see the spread of Greek as, as the tongue of the learned, as the language of the elite. And especially among Jews throughout the diaspora, they're speaking Greek more than they're speaking Hebrew. What was the original language of the New Testament? It was Greek. And in fact, Greek had so overtaken Hebrew that a lot of Jews throughout the diaspora couldn't even read their own Hebrew Bible because they didn't know Hebrew. And so a group of 72 Jewish scholars, translators, took the Hebrew Bible and translated it into Greek so that Greek-speaking Jews could read their own scripture. Because it was 72 of them, uh, 12 or 6 from each of the 12 tribes, they called it the Septuagint. And sept is the number for seven, and so there we get 72 and so on. The Septuagint, it's often abbreviated as LXX, if you've ever seen that. R Roman numerals for 50 plus 10 plus 10, there's 70. So the LXX, the Septuagint, is the Greek Old Testament. And much of what we see in the New Testament, when it's quoting the Old Testament, it's quoting the Septuagint. Uh, because that's the, the book of scripture that they have in the, the lingua franca, or in this case, the lingua greca, can we even say that? The Greek language that is, that is covering the Greek empire. Uh, another issue is, is education, as I mentioned. I mean, when you have people like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle as, as the, the key philosophers, then of course Greek philosophy is going to spread. I mean, who was Alexander the Great's personal tutor? Aristotle was. And so, think about it from a Jewish perspective, and are the philosophies of men beginning to be mingled with Scripture? And are they beginning to learn not just from an Ezekiel, but from an Aristotle? They're not just reading Psalms, they're reading Socrates. It's not just Proverbs, it's Plato. And, and we still quote them to this day. What's the old joke about philosophy? That all of philosophy is just Aristotle and everything sense is just a footnote? <laughs> no, that's, a, that's an extreme. But think about how influential they still are throughout Western culture. And to understand what the Jews are up against facing that, I've sometimes told my own students that 
college is where faith goes to die. Unfortunately, it can also college is also where faith goes to be educated. But sadly, so often education is one of the drivers of secularization. And that was happening to the Jews as well during the, the Hellenistic period, during the Greek Empire. Another issue here is entertainment. Again, here think Hollywood spreading its influence across the globe. Uh, but to think of Greek amphitheaters where the famous Greek orators are speaking, where, the, where tragedies and comedies are being performed before people. And there are amphitheaters being built in Judea and Palestine as well. If that's entertainment, uh, one of the great forms of entertainment, ancient and as well as modern, is sports. So think about the Olympic Games that Greece made famous. Now, the tricky part here, I mean, there's hippodromes. Hippo is the Greek word for horse, and so a racetrack. Uh, and to be able to see these, the charioteers and so on, there's going to be hippodromes built in, in, in Israel as well. Uh, to think about gymnasia being built, and to be able to go to the gymnasium, to be able to practice your sport. Now, the tricky part, uh, as far as the ancient world is concerned, is the Greeks tended to exercise in the nude. And so if you went to the gymnasium, you were exposed for all to see, which culturally, culturally wasn't a problem to the Greeks. They thought it was totally normal. I mean, think about statues. And there they are because they glorified the human body. Uh, they would have bathhouses where you would go and, and not just cleanse yourself, but that's where so much conversation took place and where politicking was occurring and so on. And if you're not going to the gymnasium and if you're not going to the bathhouse, you really are cut off from culture and society. And yet, if you're a good Jewish boy, going to the gymnasium or the bathhouse, the fact that you have been circumcised is visible for all to see. And the Greeks were horrified by that. They think, I mean, think about this. Ever since the days of Abraham, circumcision has been the token of the covenant, a reminder that you are the seed of Abraham, and that part of the Abrahamic covenant was to have seed like the stars of heaven and the sands of the sea. This token, this visible reminder, this outward manifestation of an inner reality that you were embracing now became the ultimate sign that you did not belong. You stood out. You stuck out. You, you couldn't be accepted into Greek society. And so many Jewish young men, and I'm sure some of the old as well, there was actually a way to try to hide that token. There was even a, a medical procedure. It was called epispasm. And it was a reversal of circumcision. And to think of what these young men would put themselves through just to try to fit into this Greek Hellenistic culture. Can I hide the fact that I am a Jew? And that's what was happening. In fact, there is a verse in Maccabees. This is chapter 1, verse 14 of 1 Maccabees. It says that, so they built a gymnasium in Jerusalem. Right there. Let's bring sporting events right here into the holy city. According to Gentile custom, there's Hellenization making its way, and removed the marks of circumcision and abandoned the holy covenant. 
They're going through this, this horrific medical procedure, epispasm. They're reversing things. The verse then ends, they joined with the Gentiles and sold themselves to do evil. Even the canonized New Testament speaks about it. In 1 Corinthians, and again, Corinth is as close to Athens as you can get as far as the letters of Paul are concerned. And so you want to talk about Greek culture? That's what the Corinthian saints are up against. And what does Paul say to them in 1 Corinthians 7, 18? Is any man called being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Again, if you don't know about epispasm, if you don't know about Hellenization, then don't become uncircumcised. You'd scratch your head going, that's impossible. How would you reverse that? Well, they had their ways. Because there was such a desperate pull just to fit in. Can you feel their pain? Can you understand what they're up against? Remember when Daniel and Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael were brought into Babylon to be Babylonified? Let's change your names and have you thinking less about the God of Israel that's hidden in your name and more about the gods of Babylon that will be hidden in your new names like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You'll see similar things happening by the time you get to the New Testament. And even high priests, by then high priests have become... It's more of a political office than a strictly a religious one, and it's one that is being bought and sold. Uh, there's, no, there's no real priesthood authority once you get to an Annas and a Caiaphas at the, at the trials of Jesus. And we'll see some of that in the pages of, of the Maccabees. But to understand this, the name changes, that you start seeing fewer and fewer high priests with Hebrew names, and you'll get a high priest named Jason, for example. Wait, you mean like Jason and the Argonauts? That story from Greek myth? Yeah, like that. A Jewish high priest named Jason. Hmm, where's that coming from? You will see it in what they eat. I mean, again, everything that happened in Babylon is happening again now with Greece in charge. Uh, and with, with Daniel and the others, it was, you can't pray to your God. You can only pray to ours. You're going to eat our food and, and listen to our music and and take on our identity and remove your own. The same kinds of things. To be Babylonified is to be Hellenized. It's to become like everybody else and to break your covenants along the way. By the time you get to the life, the, the time of Jesus and the Roman Empire now in charge, there is still a challenge among so many of just how do I fit in? How do, my, I make, how do I make my way in this larger world? And Jesus is there to try to tell them to be different. To take them out. Well, not to take them out of the world, but not to be of it. In fact, that's another way you can separate Sadducees and Pharisees. Sadducees said, no, you need to remember the, the statement, in the world but not of the world? The Sadducees said, let's be in the world so we can make a difference there. We can still run the temple and we can get along with the Romans that are in charge. The Pharisees said, let's not be of the world and let's hold strictly to the law of Moses and guard it with as many additional rules and laws as, as we can come up with because we have to maintain this difference. It's interesting as Jesus and his apostles and his disciples are trying to navigate life under the Roman Empire. 
There's so much that they can learn from Old Testament predecessors and so much that we can learn from our New Testament predecessors of how do we navigate life under similar circumstances. So, to conclude this part and then look ahead to, to our, our apocryphal scripture, let me sum up what I'm trying to convey here by walking you through this age of empires. When I try to explain this to my students, I show them the, the fish. The little one being gobbled by the big one, by the bigger one, by the bigger one. The dominoes are beginning to fall. And I'll assign a word, a strategy, to each one. For the Assyrians, my, the word is alienate. Can we alienate you from your identity as children of God, children of the covenant? Can we draw you away from sacred space, away from promised land? so that you're less likely to keep your promises? Can we bring in outside influences so that you are alienated from who you have always been and who you're meant to be? Uh, replace Assyria with Babylon, and the word is assimilate. This is the process of Babylonification that I've talked about with their food, with their music, with their gods, with their new names, robbing you of your identity as you're being assimilated into the Babylonian Empire, into their culture. The next empire was the Persians, and their word would be ingratiate, because the Persians tended to treat their conquered subjects pretty well. To the Jews, they said, go ahead and go home. Rebuild your temple, rebuild your, just be good citizens of the Persian Empire, and we'll live and let live. But do you understand the danger of that kind of ingratiation? In fact, as we studied Ezra and Nehemiah, part of the problem was most of the Jews didn't want to go back. We feel fine here in Persia. We've already been Babylonified, and the Persians are making it even easier to stick around. Uh, they, they treat us just fine, and so we might as well stay and become a little more Persian in the process. That, that, that can be tricky when you feel so, like you finally fit in, and, and life seems to be going well. Under, under current circumstances. Now, if Persia then is supplanted by the Greek Empire, this, the word of the day here is indoctrinate. We've gone from alienation to assimilation to ingratiation to indoctrination. Technically, we call it Hellenization. And there's that Greek philosophy and, and sports and entertainment and, and language and everything we, else we've seen in Greek culture to the point that Hebrews are becoming more Greek than ever and losing something along the way. The Greek Empire is then replaced by the Roman Empire. And if I had to pick a word for them, the word would be intimidate. And you can use that in both the negative as well as the positive form. Intimidation negatively, it's uh, this the Roman Empire and these legions marching into Palestine and there's nothing we can do to stop them. When Pompey conquers, this Roman general, Pompey conquers Israel in 63 BC, there's no standing up to that. When the Greek Empire comes onto the scene, there was some standing up to the Seleucids. We'll see that in, when we get to the Maccabees. But there was no standing up to the Roman Empire. There was no chance to, to beat them militarily. And so this intimidation was intense. But on the positive side, it was just being overawed by an empire like nothing they'd ever seen before. In a way, the Roman Empire partook of all of the game plans, the strategies of their predecessors. And so as far as alienation is concerned, drawing you away, think about Roman roads 
allowing Jews to leave and go elsewhere in the Roman Empire or bring in outside influences that made it harder to live the, the gospel. Think about a, a Babylonian assimilation and the Roman Empire. Man, there are so many perks if you're a Roman citizen. And if you'll just try to get along, where do you think the publicans are coming from? These are Jews who are tax collectors for Rome. But I just want to be part of the group. I want to be part of the, the winning team. And if I can just cozy up to Rome, oh, this sense of this assimilation, I, I can finally fit in and make a way for myself. When you think about Persian ingratiation, Rome, I mean, think about Pax Romana. And as long as you're good, loyal citizens or subjects in this case, then you can, you can enjoy the peace across our empire. And so can we ingratiate ourselves to you in that way? And then indoctrination. In many ways, the Greeks had been so successful in their Hellenization that the Romans just oh, <laughs> took all the Greek stuff and just Latinized it. Uh, they took the Greek pantheon and just gave them Roman names. I mean, Jupiter is just Zeus wearing a Roman toga instead of a Greek one, okay? And so to see what they're doing to continue to spread those kinds of philosophies around the empire, those kinds of sporting events, those kinds of, the kind of oratory, it's hard to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ when you are surrounded by modern culture. It's hard to maintain your identity as a child of God when the world is so appealing and trying to draw us out to change that identity for something else. And yet that is what we're called upon to do. That's what Jesus was asking his, of his disciples. To be in the world, yes, but not to be of it. To be different in order to make a difference. If we can overcome the challenges of the world around us with all of its alienation and assimilation and ingratiation and indoctrination and intimidation, we'll be true disciples of Jesus Christ. And that's the goal. As we turn to the New Testament and study it this year, please understand what Jesus is trying to accomplish with the people all around him and realize he hasn't changed his goals as he works with us today. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer to Assyria and to Babylon and to Persia and to Greece and to Rome. It's the answer to, to common culture. It's what lifts us above it. And as we turn to Jesus and see his teachings, He's still teaching us similar truths today. Now, for this second half of the lesson, I want to talk about the intertestamental period from a scriptural perspective. It's tragic when you turn the page on Malachi and see at its conclusion, there written on the bottom of the page in big bold letters, the end of the prophets. It's pretty stark to look at that. I mean, I'm looking at Matthew chapter 1, but just turn back a page, and there, in all capital letters at the end of Malachi 4, it's the end. No more prophets. And that's tragic. Now, what happens as you turn that page? Well, you just turned 400 years worth of pages. And without prophets to lead the way, 
what do we do? I actually wondered, was that just something the King James translators wrote in there to just kind of end the Old Testament? Well, I actually looked it up and the King James Version was translated in 1611. And sure enough, it says the end of the prophets, even in the original uh, King James Version. But rewind, and in 1560, the Geneva Bible was published. That was the Bible that Shakespeare used and the Puritans used, that the pilgrims brought across the ocean. And sure enough, at the end of Malachi 4, in the Geneva Bible, it also says the end of the prophets. Well, rewind yet again. And in, in 1540, this is the Great Bible, the one authorized by King Henry VIII. And after the end of Malachi 4, in the Great Bible, it says, a little longer this time, the end of the prophecy of Malachi, and consequently of all the prophets. That's it. There went prophetic leadership among the people of Israel. But was it really all over? Was that really the end? Because a new prophet was yet to come in Jesus. Think about Acts chapter 3, verse 22. Peter is teaching the Jews here, and he says, For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren. Like unto me, him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. Think about that. A prophet like Moses will come. Jesus will be Moses 2.0, here to fulfill the law, not to destroy it. In fact, think about this parallel. Moses comes onto the scene after a 400-year period of apostasy without prophets. The Hebrews had been slaves to the Egyptians, and Moses comes to deliver them. Well, in a similar way, Jesus, the new Moses, comes on the heels of roughly 400 years of apostasy. Not in bondage to the Egyptians, but culturally speaking, in bondage to the Greeks. And without prophets at the helm. And Jesus comes to deliver them from all of that. You know, it's interesting because even the period of apostasies that have happened throughout history... It's not like God closed up shop and just abandoned his people. He would never do that. Think about this verse from 2 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 3 and 4. This is one of my favorite verses to ponder apostasies in any age. It says, Now for a long season Israel hath been without the true God, and without a teaching priest, and without law. Sound like apostasy to you? They can't connect with heaven in the, in the true way, collectively, institutionally. There's no teaching priest, now, let alone a teaching or prophesying prophet. There's no law, at least not living it the way they ought to. And yet, what's the next verse say? But, so despite all of this evidence of apostasy, but when they in their trouble did turn unto the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he was found of them. And that is a beautifully reassuring reality. That despite institutional apostasy, individually we can still connect with heaven. That despite the fact that there's no teaching priest, I can still learn from the Lord who loves me. I can turn to him and I can find him if only I'll search. And throughout the years of the intertestamental period, the 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, there were people, righteous, valiant people, who were seeking God and finding him. We'll meet a few of them in just a moment. Now, like I said, 
the intertestamental period was Greek Empire. And the part that we're going to study now in the book of First and Second Maccabees was during the reign of the Seleucids. When, this, when the empire split, it, it started with the Ptolemies in charge from below, from the south, from the Egyptian side of things. And then the Seleucids came and conquered that, that area and took over Palestine in, in their place. And by the time you get to uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus Epimenes, if you want to make fun of him, Antiochus IV is the most brutal dictator that the Jews had to live through during that period. And he essentially made Judaism illegal. Think about the Latter-day Saints in Missouri when there's an extermination order. Think about all the anti-polygamy legislation of the 1870s and 80s where the church was basically unincorporated and they stood to lose everything, including the temple and, and the opportunity to worship God according to the dictates of their own conscience. It was a hard time to be a Latter-day Saint. And during the reign of Antiochus IV, it was almost impossible to be a good practicing Jew. According to one passage in 1 Maccabees, he, they even called Antiochus IV a sinful root. Oh, and that root brought forth incredibly sinful fruits for anyone that stood in his way. Now, to make sense of this history, which is again going to set the stage for a lot of what we'll see in, in the New Testament when Jesus comes, I want to turn to First and Second Maccabees in the, in the Apocrypha. Now, like I said earlier on today, the Apocrypha are writings that well, Catholicism by and large has accepted as canonical and Protestantism by and large has rejected as canonical. Uh, as Latter-day Saints, where do we fit in in all of this? Section 91 of the Doctrine and Covenants, Joseph was plowing through the Bible with the working on the Joseph Smith translation and he got to the Apocrypha and he wondered, what do I do with this? Do we believe it or not? Which side of the family are we, are we leaning towards? And the Lord says to him in section 91, the Apocrypha is partly inspired and partly uninspired. No wonder there's some confusion and division on this. Yeah, he says that there are parts that are, that are inspired by the Spirit and other parts that are merely the interpolations of men. And yet he says, if you have the Spirit, you can tell the difference. And you can take benefit from the parts that are true and then leave the rest behind. He does say to Joseph, by the way, you don't have to do the translation on it because it's not on the same level as, as the rest of the canon. Uh, and that should tell us something too. If you want to study the Apocrypha, be my guest. There's some amazing things there. But your emphasis should definitely be on what we actually have in the standard works. So if some extra reading, fine, fine, enjoy it. And I did the last couple of weeks as I, as I reread First and Second Maccabees. Uh, and it's not that they're just, they're, it's not a sequel like you'd normally think of as first and then second. It's more like, oh, Kings versus Chronicles, okay? And so First Maccabees is one version of the history and Second Maccabees is another version of the, of the history. And they don't always uh, coincide, just like there were some discrepancies between the history in First and Second Kings and the history in First and Second Chronicles. We'll see the same thing when we get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's some differences in their approach in the things that they remember. And the same is true of those who wrote First Maccabees and those who wrote Second Maccabees. But as you compare the two, you do see some really interesting similarities in the things that they are emphasizing. And more than anything, they're emphasizing what the Jews are up against under the horrific reign of Antiochus IV. Let me give you some, some verses that might help. 
This is from 1 Maccabees chapter 1, verse 44 through 50. And the king, Antiochus, sent letters by messengers to Jerusalem and the towns of Judah. He directed them to follow customs strange to the land. There's Hellenization taking place. To forbid burnt offerings and sacrifices and drink offerings in the sanctuary. So that's making Jewish practice basically illegal, where they were forbidding them there at the temple. To profane Sabbaths and festivals. So let's take away the day that you have to remember God. To defile the sanctuary and the priests. So let's make the holy place not so holy. To build altars and sacred precincts and shrines for idols. So let's replace true worship with false worship. Here's where it gets truly horrific to the Jews. To sacrifice swine and other unclean animals. So taking something unclean and using them as a sacrifice that is meant to be clean without blemish, firstling of the flock. Talk about a, a complete reversal of what worship is meant to be. And then finally, to leave their sons uncircumcised. This is removing the token of the covenant, letting you fit in, not wanting you to, to feel like you're an outsider when we're trying to bring you into our common culture. The verse goes on, they were to make themselves abominable by everything unclean and profane so that they would forget the law and change all the ordinances. There's apostasy for you. And it's being enforced under penalty of death. The final verse there, he added, and whosoever does not obey the command of the king shall die. Now, we're no longer facing the death penalty physically, but in a way we face the death penalty socially if we stick to our guns and hold to our covenants. If you've ever been made to feel less than or an outsider or just unaccepted or unacceptable because of the standards you keep and the beliefs that you hold to, then welcome to life during the intertestamental period. Welcome to life under the brutal reign of Antiochus IV. That passage summarizes things about as well as anything I've seen to understand what the, what the Jews were up against. Now, later on in that same chapter, chapter 1 of 1 Maccabees, look at verse 54 and then jump to 56 and 57. Now, on the 15th day of Chislev, a Jewish month, in the 145th year, they erected a desolating sacrilege on the altar of burnt offering. And if you were to look at the original where it says desolating sacrilege, guess what it is literally? The abomination of desolation. That was a phrase we saw in the book of Daniel. That was a phrase that Jesus will bring up all over again when he talks about the signs of the times for the last days. You see how closely we can draw these parallels then between what they were going through and what we are going through? You're taking the altar of sacrifice to Jehovah and superimposing it with an altar to Olympian Zeus. We're going to take the temple of Jehovah and turn it into a temple of Zeus. We're going to take, instead of lambs without blemish, we're going to offer swine as an unclean animal. We're going to rub it into your face. This is an abomination of desolations. And to see what the Jews were facing at that time period, basically making living their religion illegal. To think of that as a sign of the times in the last days, 
is is there a reason President Oaks keep ta keeps talking about preserving religious freedom? I would think so. To understand what, what we're up against, just like what they were up against, that's what we're seeing here. And then the other verses that I mentioned, 56 and 57, the books of the law that they found, they tore to pieces and burned with fire. Anyone found possessing the book of the covenant or anyone who adhered to the law was condemned to death by decree of the king. This is going to be an age of martyrdom, just like Christianity would be an age of martyrdom under the Roman Empire with a Diocletian, with a Nero, to understand what it, what it would require, the kind of faith required of the faithful, uh, courage as well. Now, like I said, they are sacrificing swine on the altar. Here is the abomination of desolations that Jesus will talk about in his time period. Uh, according to other records, they are making a broth with swine flesh and then sprinkling that unholy water upon the, the scriptures that people hold. They are forcing the high priest to eat swine flesh along with other Jews. They extinguish the light of the candlestick in the temple. The menorah has been put out and that house of light is now becoming a house of darkness. Like I said, they're making Judaism illegal and enforcing it under penalty of death. If you jump to the second Maccabees version, this is what is, is said in chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. When Seleucus died and Antiochus, who was called Epiphanes, succeeded to the kingdom, Jason, the brother of Onias, obtained the high priesthood by corruption, promising the king in, at an interview 360 talents of silver, and from another source of revenue, 80 talents. In addition to this, he promised to pay 150 more if permission were given to establish by his authority a gymnasium and a body of youth for it, and to enroll the people of Jerusalem as citizens of Antioch. When the king assented and Jason came to office, he at once shifted his compatriots over to the Greek way of life. That's Hellenization to a T. And how does he do it? by obtaining the high priesthood by corruption, this man Jason. Now it's interesting because his brother is Onias. That's a Hebrew name. Jason is a Greek name. So we're seeing the shift right here before us. And we're finding someone who's obtaining the high priesthood by bribery. He wants to be in charge. And so he's paying off the, the Seleucid ruler. We're actually going to see later, we won't, we won't study it here, but in Maccabees, he ends up sending a, another payment to the king. And the person who's delivering the money is like, why am I doing this for my boss? Why can't I be his boss? And so he ingratiates himself with the king, gives all this money, throws in and promises him a little extra himself and says, hey, you mind if you replace the old high priest with me? I'd love to take his place. And they're like, yeah, sure, why not? You're, it'll go to the highest bidder. So no wonder the, the priesthood is in a state of apostasy by the time Jesus comes onto the scene. Okay? But to shift to the Greek way of life, that's what's going on during this intertestamental period. Another verse from 2 Maccabees chapter 4. Look at verse 12 through 15. He took delight in establishing a gymnasium right under the citadel. So right there by the temple mount. He induced the noblest of the young men to wear the Greek hat. 
And the Greek hat was actually a pun, a play on words from the word induced. And so is this a literal hat or simply a metaphor for the Greek way of life? And who's he focusing on? The noblest of the young men. This is Daniel and his friends all over again. This is Babylonification 2.0, a.k.a. Hellenization. And, and it's proceeding apace. It says there was such an extreme of Hellenization and increase in the adoption of foreign ways because of the surpassing wickedness of Jason, who was ungodly and no true high priest, that the priests were no longer intent upon their service at the altar. Despising the sanctuary and neglecting the sacrifices, they hurried to take part in the unlawful proceedings in the wrestling arena after the signal for the discus throwing, disdaining the honors prized by their ancestors and putting the highest value upon Greek forms of prestige. Are you seeing the similarities of what we're going through? How quickly can I get out of church so I can go back and watch the discus throwing? Can I, do I look down upon those who are emphasizing priesthood and look up to those who are out there showing off in the wrestling arena? To get to a point where we disdain the honors of our ancestors and instead look around and what do the Greeks prize? That's what I want to prize as well. That's where real prestige will come from. Later in 2 Maccabees, chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, Not long after this, the king sent an Athenian senator to compel the Jews to forsake the laws of their ancestors and no longer to live by the laws of God, also to pollute the temple in Jerusalem and to call it the temple of Olympian Zeus. An Athenian senator? Athens? You think he's speaking some Greek philosophy? You think he's trying to talk people out of their beliefs with these philosophies of men, mingled or not, with Scripture? Oh, it's, it's haunting. At least it was for me to read First and Second Maccabees and to feel like it was describing my own time period as the world is too much with us and we want to spend a little too much time with the world. Now, how could all this happen? How would God allow this to occur? We're going to have a Job-like theodicy here where the Jews are going to have to wrestle with the fact that they're being defeated by an enemy that is so wicked. Is this God using the Assyrian rod again or the Babylonian paddle to try to correct us? Is this redemptive turbulence? I hope so. Notice this in 2 Maccabees chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. And this is some interesting theologizing, trying to make sense of what they're going through. It says, But the Lord did not choose the nation for the sake of the holy place, but the place for the sake of the nation. Now that's fascinating. He's talking about the temple there. And the temple is being defiled. It's the abomination of desolations. How could this happen? It's God's holy house. Of all places, He would want to protect well, not if, we're, not if he feels unwelcome there. Remember, we saw this in the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians. And the people kept thinking in, in Judah, this is Jeremiah and so on. There's no way that they're going to be able to conquer us. We have the temple here. And Jeremiah is like pushing back. The temple of God, the temple of God, the temple of the God are these. Are you serious? It's not. He doesn't live here anymore. 
because he doesn't feel welcome. We're not acting like his people, so he can't be our God. This, the way it's said here, to me, is even more fascinating because it reminds me of what Jesus says about the Sabbath in the book of Mark, that man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. Here, in this case, the Lord didn't choose the nation for the sake of the holy place. It's not like he had the temple, and that's all important. Oh, you know, I should bring some people around so they have, so the temple can have people to worship it. No, it's, it's, that's confusing means with ends. It's my people that I care about. So I put the temple among my people in hopes that it would help change them. It's amazing that difference, if we have that true perspective, knowing that the temple is means Restoring my people is the end. Okay, we saw that in section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Anyway, the verse goes on. Therefore the place itself shared in the misfortunes that befell the nation, and afterward participated in its benefits. And what was forsaken in the wrath of the Almighty was restored again in all its glory when the great Lord became reconciled. Like I said, that's some interesting theology trying to make sense of, of what they're suffering. It wasn't the, the entire destruction of the temple, like the Babylonians, but it was the desecration of the temple by the Seleucid Greeks. And how could God allow this to happen? Oh, don't blame them. Look inward. Lord is it I. Blame ourselves. We desecrated the temple. We have been following Greek modes of living, no wonder Greek modes of worship are being forced upon us too. We should have seen this coming. And yet, as the writer of Maccabees sees, yes, the temple went down with the people, but it will rise as the people rise as well. It will participate in all the glory once we become reconciled to God. And that was beginning to happen. If you go back to the version of 1 Maccabees, look at chapter 1, verse 25 through 28. Israel mourned deeply in every community. Rulers and elders groaned. Young women and young men became faint. The beauty of the women faded. Every bridegroom took up the lament. She who sat in the bridal chamber was mourning. Even the land trembled for its inhabitants, and all the house of Jacob was clothed with shame. Now that passage was in poetry. You can hear the poetic rhymes, this, the repeated ideas there, but they all have to do with mourning and sorrow godly sorrow as they're coming to understand what they'd done wrong in inviting the, the Hellenistic world. Sometimes wonder if the first four letters of Hellenization are, are closer to the truth than we realize. But to understand we've brought this upon ourselves and we are sorry. Now it's not just repentance among the wicked, it's also valiance and courage among the righteous. So again, 1 Maccabees chapter 1, verse 62 to 64, but many in Israel stood firm and were resolved in their hearts not to eat unclean food. They chose to die rather than to be defiled by food or to profane the holy covenant. And they did die. Very great wrath came upon Israel. Can you imagine trying to remain faithful during such times? This is Esther. If I perish, I perish. 
This is Daniel being thrown in the lion's den and not being preserved. This is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego facing the fiery furnace and getting the but if not instead of the if it be so. The books of Maccabees describe some brutal martyrdoms. And to understand the faithfulness of people keeping their covenants when life was on the line, the least we can do is to face social martyrdom, to sometimes be ostracized because we hold to the standards that God has given us. <laughs> I'm inspired, honestly. These are, part of that. These are some of the passages that I can feel benefit me when I look at it through the lens of DNC 91. This is Apocrypha that is truly inspired. Let me show you a few more passages. When you go to 2 Maccabees and see their version, chapter 6, verse 12, and then verse 14 through 16, here's some more theologizing taking place, trying to make sense of what they were going through. The writer says, Now I urge those who read this book not to be depressed by such calamities. And that's hard to do because it's depressing to see what people are going through because of their faith. But, he says, instead of being depressed, to recognize that these punishments were designed not to destroy, but to discipline our people. What a difference that makes. The kinds of, this is redemptive turbulence, to borrow Elder Maxwell's phrase. What we go through, the adversities we face, aren't meant to, to destroy us. They're meant to discipline us, to make us more, more true disciples. That's where discipline comes from. For in the case of the other nations, the author goes on, the Lord waits patiently to punish them until they have reached the full measure of their sins. Genesis talks about that. that we're not going to drive out the people of the Amorites, for example, until their iniquity is full. God will be incredibly patient with people who don't yet know him. But he does not deal in this way with us in order that he may not take vengeance on us afterwards when our sins have reached their height. Therefore, he never withdraws his mercy from us. Although he disciplines us with calamities, he does not forsake his own people. That's an incredible attitude. To not feel forsaken even when it sometimes looks like you might have been. This is Joseph wondering in Liberty Jail, God, where art thou? as we're being driven out of the state, our own extermination order against us. And yet knowing God was there, knowing that all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. To understand the discipline that God is requiring of us, but that he's not withdrawing his mercy, that justice comes swiftly to wake us up and remind us that we are covenant people and we've got to keep those covenants. Well, the Jews are being awakened as we speak. There's a story in 2 Maccabees about a man named Eliezer. He's a scribe in high position, he's described. A man now advanced in age and of noble presence. So the picture is someone everyone looks up to. A scribe, he knows the scriptures incredibly well. He's a man in a leadership position, but not one that he obtained by bribery. He's obtained this by faithfulness. He's of a noble presence. But notice what happens in 2 Maccabees chapter 6. Eliezer was forced to open his mouth to eat swine's flesh. But he, welcoming death with honor, 
rather than life with pollution, went up to the rack of his own accord, spitting out the flesh. In fact, the story goes on that there were people there in charge of the sacrifice that respected Eliezer and didn't want him to have to die. So they even suggested, kind of under, his, under their breath, just go home, grab some meat of your own. It doesn't have to be swine flesh. We'll go along with the ruse. Pretend that it's this abominable flesh, and, and, but eat something clean. And then you'll get off the hook. And no one has to know. We're trying to preserve your life here. And yet, what does this noble Eliezer say in response? He says, such pretense is not worthy of our time of life. For many of the young might suppose that Eliezer in his 90th year had gone over to an alien religion and through my pretense, for the sake of living a brief moment longer, they would be led astray because of me. While I defile and disgrace my old age, even if for the present I would avoid the punishment of mortals, Yet, whether I live or die, I will not escape the hands of the Almighty. Oh, man, Eliezer, that's incredible. And who's he most concerned about? The rising generation. Young men might look at me and think, well, if Eliezer is going along with it, I mean, they don't know that he's pretending. And if they think he's going ahead and eating swine's flesh, breaking his own covenants, going against the kosher laws, then why can't we? There's something to be said for standing up for truth and righteousness for the sake of those who might need an example of valiance to follow. And Eliezer was setting just that kind of example. He wasn't alone in that. There's a later story told of a woman with seven sons, all of whom are martyred right before her eyes. And then she's killed at the end of it all. I'm not going to go into the gory details of these martyrdoms, although they're spelled out on the pages of 2 Maccabees chapter 7. But at the end of it all, listen to what this mother says to her final remaining son, knowing there's no hope left for him or for her. 2 Maccabees 7, verse 20 to 23. The mother was especially admirable and worthy of honorable memory. Although she saw her seven sons perish within a single day, she bore it with good courage because of her hope in the Lord. She encouraged each of them in the language of their ancestors. That's beautiful. Talking about people before us have gone through horrible things too. Hold to the faith. It says, filled with a noble spirit, she reinforced her woman's reasoning with a man's courage best of both worlds, and said to them, I do not know how you came into being in my womb. It was not I who gave you life and breath, nor I who set in order the elements within each of you. Therefore, the creator of the world, who shaped the beginning of humankind and devised the origin of all things, will in his mercy give life and breath back to you again, since you now forget yourselves for the sake of his laws." That is beautiful. In fact, the, book of Maccabe the books of Maccabees talk more about the resurrection than the rest of the Old Testament combined. And here you see in this testimony of this incredibly valiant mother, faith in the resurrection. I don't know how God created you to begin with. So I don't know how he's going to recreate you in the next life, but I know that he will. This is a mother looking at 
conception and childbirth as a first creation and resurrection as a second. It's amazing. And like I said, if you read 2 Maccabees particularly, there's so much beautiful testimony of the resurrection that is promised us all. Even beyond that, listen to what she says to her seventh son in 2 Maccabees chapter 7, verse 29. Do not fear this butcher, but prove worthy of your brothers. Accept death so that in God's mercy, I may get you back again, along with your brothers. So it's not just resurrection she believed in. It's eternal family that she had faith in. That's amazing. Because so often we just see subtle hints of that doctrine in the Old Testament. And yet here, very clearly spelled out in the Apocrypha, in God's mercy, I'll get you back again with all your brothers. Or how about this long forgotten belief? 2 Maccabees chapter 12, verse 42 to 45. The noble Judas, this is Judah Maccabee, we'll meet him more clearly in just a moment. The noble Judas exhorted the people to keep themselves free from sin. For they had seen with their own eyes what had happened as the result of the sin of those who had fallen. He also took up a collection, man by man, to the amount of 2,000 drachmas of silver and sent it to Jerusalem to provide for a sin offering. So we, we're too far away. We can't send a bullock down or a ram or anything for a sin offering, but we'll collect money, send it down, so then they can buy a beast to be able to offer it at the temple. But notice what, how it's described. Because it, who's this sin offering for? It wasn't for the survivors. It was for the casualties in these wars. In doing this, he acted very well and honorably, taking account of the resurrection. It's because I believe that they will live again, that there needs to be some kind of sacrifice made for their sins. For if he were not expecting that those who had fallen would rise again, it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. But if he was looking to the splendid reward that is laid up for those who fall asleep in godliness, it was a holy and pious thought. Therefore, he made atonement for the dead so that they might be delivered from their sin. That's amazing. We see resurrection taught more clearly in Maccabees. We see eternal family being taught more clearly in Maccabees. And we're now seeing work for the dead being taught more clearly in Maccabees. I mean, Paul will, will clearly talk about baptism for the dead in 1 Corinthians 15. But here, some kind of atonement being made for the dead, a sin offering even after the fact, there is something that we can do here for those that have already passed on to the other side. Talk about taking account of the resurrection and trusting that, that God still had mercy and grace for those that had passed on, and, and ways for us to even assist in their deliverance. It's powerful. Uh, it, it is fascinating scripture that it's found here. Well worth our study. Now, back to a more historical view than just the theological. Now you need to meet this Judas that was so noble that we saw in the last set of verses. There, let me first introduce you to his father. This is the history of the Maccabean Revolt that takes place against Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, Epimenes, uh, to try to reclaim the temple that's been desecrated through this abomination of desolations. There was a man named Mattathias. Uh, he's a priest, and he has five sons. 
And one of them, Judas, Judah, if you go with the Hebrew, or Judas, if you put it into the Greek, Judah was nicknamed Maccabee or Maccabeus. It's the, the word for hammer. And he was, it, picture Thor, okay, with his trusty hammer. Well, there's Judah Maccabee for you. And the, the, the family of Mattathias stands up for what is true. They're willing to face the fires because of the fire of faith that's within them. Now, at one point, the king's officers come. It's kind of like Eliezer, this older man that everyone looks up to. Well, everybody looked up to Mattathias, the priest, as well. And so the king's men come to him and say, look, you need to lead out here. You need to eat the swine's flesh. You need to offer sacrifice to the pagan gods. You need to be a good Greek so that the rest of your Jewish compatriots will follow the Greek way of life. Just get along here and we'll get along with you. Well, Mattathias wasn't going to have any of that. So in 1 Maccabees chapter 2, verse 19 to 22, Mattathias answered and said in a loud voice. He wanted everyone to hear. Even if all the nations that live under the rule of the king obey him and have chosen to obey his commandments, every one of them abandoning the religion of their ancestors, I and my sons and my brothers will continue to live by the covenant of our ancestors. Far be it from us to desert the law and the ordinances. We will not obey the king's words by turning aside from our religion to the right hand or to the left. There's courage. There's faith. Even if everyone else goes the way of the world, we're not going to do it. We will stand up and stand out, come what may. Now in 1 Maccabees 2, 23-25, when he had finished speaking these words... A Jew came forward in the sight of all to offer sacrifice on the altar in Modane, where they lived, according to the king's command. So Mattathias wasn't leading out, but someone else was a little more concerned for their own self-preservation, and so they went forward. And what's Mattathias going to do about this? When Mattathias saw it, saw this man ready to, to break covenant and probably lead the rest of the people to do likewise, he burned with zeal. And his heart was stirred. He gave vent to righteous anger. He ran and killed him on the altar. At the same time, he killed the king's officer who was forcing them to sacrifice, and he tore down the altar. Oh, there's burning with zeal, all right. Remember, this is an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of time period. This is capital punishment for idolatry. As we saw in the pages of the Old Testament, in the Torah, this is... This is Mattathias burning with righteous indignation and executing the penalty so that God doesn't have to execute his penalty on all of the people. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 27 and 28, Mattathias cried out in the town with a loud voice saying, Let everyone who is zealous for the law and supports the covenant come out with me. Then he and his sons fled to the hills and left all that they had in the town. The word zeal came up in the first passage, and the word zealous came up in the second, which is important for our New Testament study, because there were zealots in the time of Jesus as well, no longer up against the Seleucid Greeks, but up against the Romans. And a zealot was someone that was burning with such righteous indignation, they would do anything to try to drive out their Roman overlords. They just wanted to preserve Judaism in its purity. 
Now, there are ways of doing it. Jesus had some, some different approaches, and we'll see those as we move forward through his ministry. But the fact that he even called a zealot to the apostleship, he's named Simon, not Simon Peter, but a different Simon, and he was an anti-Roman zealot. Uh, and so what kind of Messiah would a zealot be looking for? Well, someone like a Mattathias, someone who's ready to burn the altar, someone who's ready to, to slay the foe. So think about what kind of messianic ex expectations some people might have had for Jesus when he came. Keep moving forward, though. First Maccabees chapter 2, verse 49 and 50. Now the days drew near for Mattathias to die. He's approaching the end of his well-lived life. And he says to his sons, arrogance and scorn have now become strong. It is a time of ruin and furious anger. Now my children show zeal for the law. There's that word again. And give your lives for the covenant of our ancestors. So covenant over culture. Zeal for the law over merely going with the flow. Encouraging his sons to overcome what they were facing. Arrogance and scorn? Ruin and anger? Do we face all of those things too? Is there pride out there? Arrogance looking down on us, making us feel like idiots for believing in things that we do. Is there scorn? Is there anger? The answer to all of those is yes. And yet will we show zeal for the law and remember the covenant? In 1 Maccabees 2.51, Remember the deeds of the ancestors, Mattathias says to his sons, which they did in their generations, and you will receive great honor and an everlasting name. He goes on to list Abraham and Joseph and Phinehas and Joshua and Caleb and David and Elijah, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael and Daniel. Yes, he uses their Hebrew names, not their Babylonian ones. You see what he's doing? You see what we can do? He's looking back through the pages of the Old Testament, to inspire him and his sons to live a life of faith. And we can do likewise. Two other exhortations he gives them. And so observe from generation to generation that none of those who put their trust in him will lack strength. That's beautiful. That's rising up like with wings of eagles. That's running and not being weary. That's walking and not fainting. That's put your trust in God and be of good courage. He says something similar later. My children, be courageous and grow strong in the law, for by it you will gain honor. And so his sons did. After Mattathias' death, his son Judah, the hammer, the Maccabee, then becomes the Jews' military leader. And this is where we get what they call the Maccabean Revolt. Mattathias begins it and takes care of business there in his hometown. But Judah Maccabee will, will spread the revolt throughout Judea. In 1 Maccabees chapter 3, verse 18, Judas says this, In the sight of heaven there is no difference between saving by many or by few, which is good because we only have a few. It is not on the size of the army that victory in battle depends, but strength comes from heaven. They come against us in great insolence and lawlessness to destroy us and our wives and our children and to despoil us. But we fight for our lives and our laws. Now talk about a rallying cry. I mean, that's part David talking smack to Goliath. 
That's part Elisha saying there are more that be with us than those that be with them. That's part Joshua saying, choose you this day whom you will serve. It's part Caleb saying, give me this mountain. It's part Captain Moroni waving the title of liberty. And that's, that's Judah Maccabee for you. Makes you wonder again, is that what the Jews were expecting of their Messiah? A military leader, someone to rally the troops with those kinds of rallying cries. Not a lamb that's going meekly to the slaughter. Not someone telling people to turn the other cheek. Jesus was not what so many people were expecting. He was so much more. But back to Judah Maccabee. What's he say in 1 Maccabees 4, 8 through 11? Judah said to those who were with him, Do not fear their numbers or be afraid when they charge. Remember how our ancestors were saved at the Red Sea when Pharaoh with his forces pursued them. And now let us cry to heaven to see whether he will favor us and remember his covenant with our ancestors and crush this army before us today. Then all the Gentiles will know that there is one who redeems and saves Israel. Looking back to Moses, Nephi did that when he had to go face a local Laban. And if God could overcome Pharaoh, he can definitely help us here. Judah Maccabee is saying similar things. And when he says, all the Gentiles shall know, that's always what prophets say when they're in enemy territory. That's in Exodus, it's in, with Egypt, it's in Ezekiel, Ezekiel with the Babylonians, that they shall know. And we have to live our lives in such a way that the world around us can come to know the God that we believe in. Next, 2 Maccabees 15, 17 through 18. There's a little more of the history here. Encouraged by the words of Judas, so noble and so effective in arousing valor and awaking courage in the souls of the young. Remember, it's always about the rising generation. That's who Eliezer was worried about. That's who Judas is focusing on. If we can energize the young, if we can rouse the rising generation spiritually, there's nothing that they can't accomplish. These are the stripling warriors all over again. So he arouses their valor. He awakens their courage. But they determine not to carry on a campaign, but to attack bravely. So we're not going to just slowly hope to kind of starve out the Greeks. We're going to attack them with courage. And to decide the matter by fighting hand to hand with all courage, because the city and the sanctuary and the temple were in danger. We don't have time for patience. We've got to, we've got to attack to defend our sacred space. Their concern for wives and children and also for brothers and sisters and relatives lay upon them less heavily. Their greatest and first fear was for the consecrated sanctuary. That's amazing. Even beyond family, they prioritized temple knowing that it's the temple and faithfulness to the covenants that they could make there that would assure them that they could have their families forever, just like that righteous mother knew. Now, the Jewish armies, led by Judah the hammer, end up defeating the Seleucids in battle. In 1 Maccabees 4, 36 through 40, Judas and his brothers said, See, our enemies are crushed. Let us go up to cleanse the sanctuary and dedicate it. So all the army assembled and went up to Mount Zion, ascending the mountain of the Lord. There they saw the sanctuary desolate, the altar profaned, the gates burned, which would have all been devastating for them. In the courts they saw bushes sprung up as in a thicket. 
or as on one of the mountains. Picture this kind of ghost town, tumbleweeds going back and forth across the, the sanctuary. They saw also the chambers of the priests in ruins, and they tore their clothes and mourned with great lamentation. They sprinkled themselves with ashes and fell face down on the ground. And when the signal was given with the trumpets, they cried out to heaven. This, again, is godly sorrow. How could we let God's house come to this? If we ever expect him to return, we've got to rededicate it and rededicate ourselves. We've got to clean up house so he can feel welcome here. And so they do. 1 Maccabees 4, 47 through 50. Then they took unhewn stones as the law directs and built a new altar like the former one. Let's get rid of this altar made to, to Zeus. I mean, the temple itself is still standing. We just need to clean it all up. Let's rebuild the altar of sacrifice. They also rebuilt the sanctuary and the interior of the temple. Again, the walls are still standing, but to clean everything else up. And they consecrated the courts. They made new holy vessels and brought the lampstand, the altar of incense, the table into the temple. Then they offered incense on the altar and lit the lamps on the lampstand, and these gave light in the temple. You see what Judah Maccabee is doing here? He's, he's cleaning house the way Jesus would do, in a similar way at least. He is re, he's about to rededicate the temple. He is restoring the furnishings that had been lost when Antiochus IV goes in and ransacks all the gold from the temple to fill his own coffers. To replace a candlestick, to light the lamps on that lampstand, to give light in this house that had grown dark during the period of apostasy. This is Hanukkah, the festival of lights. Hanukkah in Hebrew means dedication. And so to rededicate the temple. So almost every year, well, my, well, she's stopped doing it. But for years early on in our marriage, my wife every Christmas would ask, where does Hanukkah come from again? And you know me, the long-winded historian. I've got to give backstory. So I'm like, well, we've got to go back to the Persian. Right, now let's start with the Babylon. Now let's go back to Assyria, shall we? And by the time I've explained it for like an hour and finally ended up with the rededication of the, the temple in the reign of Judah Maccabee, my wife is so confused and, and bored to tears that she can't even remember it. So no wonder that following year she has to ask all over again. And she'll say, hey, honey, what, what, where does Hanukkah come from again? I'm like, oh, well, you got to start way back. And then she's like, oh, oh, no, 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 no. Now I'm remembering. Uh, I'm remembering why I forgot. Can you just sum it up quickly? My, oh, yeah, temple was rededicated. Okay. They had the menorah. They relit the lights and, and they're good to go. She's like, okay, that I actually might remember. <laughs> but I, I like some added context, some added background. But this is the passage in 1 Maccabees where we see it taking place the rededication, the festival of lights. Now, Maccabees doesn't explain the miracle that took place then. For that, you have to turn to the Talmud, uh, which are Jewish writings from later in history, reflecting back on this past. And what's described there is that there had been so much defiling of sacred things in the temple that there wasn't any oil left that was marked with the seal of the high priest. Well, there was one pitcher left, one vessel, but that was only enough oil to last one day. And it takes a full eight days to be able to make new oil and to sanctify it to the point that it's worthy of being used to provide light in the house of the Lord. But 
Remember, burning with zeal and not, want, not wanting to waste a moment. As soon as they could, they rededicated the temple and they relit the candle stand to give light into that house. And then they started hard at work to get more light, more oil prepared. But the miracle of Hanukkah is that that one day's worth of oil lasted the full eight until it could be replaced with new oil. Because the light was never supposed to go out. It was supposed to be a perpetual flame bearing witness of the light of the world. And that light, the light, produced the miracle that allowed the light to continue. This is on the level of multiplying the loaves and the fishes, as Jesus would do. Of Elijah multiplying the widow's oil and meal, and Elisha doing something similar. To the fact that God can extend things and allow light to continue shining even in your darkest days. There's something powerful about this miracle. And although Hanukkah has always been a minor Jewish festival, it's only become major in more recent years as Jews are living among Christians and feeling left out of the Christmas season and beginning to focus more on Hanukkah as a, an eight-day period of gift-giving. But just like Christmas can sadly become too commercialized, so can Hanukkah. And just like Christmas, we're supposed to be focusing on the birth of the light of the world. Hanukkah as a festival of lights is meant to focus on the gift of God in returning to his holy house. It's the rededication of the temple. You see this in 1 Maccabees 4, verse 56. So they celebrated the dedication of the altar for eight days and joyfully offered burnt offerings. They offered a sacrifice of well-being and a thanksgiving offering. Christmas and Thanksgiving going hand in hand, while Hanukkah and Thanksgiving going hand in hand as well. And eight days of dedication and celebration. In 1 Maccabees 4.59, Then Judas and his brothers and all the assembly of Israel determined that every year at that season, the day of dedication of the altar should be observed with joy and gladness for eight days, beginning with the 25th day of the month of Chislev. And again, that's where Hanukkah comes in. Now, the story isn't over because the battles aren't over. In some ways, they've just begun. They drove out the enemy and rededicated the temple, but that's only going to anger the enemy more, especially with a madman at the helm like Antiochus IV. And so the battles continue. I mean, they even send in not just infantry, not just cavalry, but elephants with towers upon them. I honestly wonder if Tolkien was borrowing from the Maccabees when he created those oliphants uh, in Lord of the Rings, because that's exactly what the Jews are facing. In fact, at one point, one of Judah's brothers goes rushing in, sees an elephant with a larger tower, and wonders, I wonder if the king is on that one. And there's no way to face this thing. So he comes rushing in and ends up killing the elephant from below, kind of stabbing him through the underbelly with a, with a spear, and kills the elephant. But unfortunately, the elephant collapses in death upon this brother and, and, and kills him. These were people willing to do anything and everything to preserve themselves and their faith and their families. And so the battles continue. 
In 1 Maccabees 7, 40-42, Judas prayed and said, When the messengers from the king spoke blasphemy, your angel went out and struck down 185,000 of the Assyrians. So also crush this army before us today. See what he's doing there? He's looking back to King Hezekiah and Isaiah and the promise that not even an arrow would be shot by the Assyrians over the walls of Jerusalem. And sure enough, the Lord's destroying angel came and Assyria woke up with 185,000 casualties and they turned tail and ran. And Judas is praying for some similar intervention from God. In 1 Maccabees 8, 1 and 2, Now Judas heard of the fame of the Romans. Now we're, we're starting, this is still middle of the Greek Empire, but the tables are starting to turn and, and power is beginning to shift from Greece to Rome. And Judas is aware of this. He's heard of the fame of the Romans, that they were very strong and were well disposed toward all who made an alliance with them, that they pledged friendship to those who came to them and that they were very strong. You see, it was in Rome's best interest to make friends along the way, among the foreigners. If we're going to conquer the Greek Empire, we're going to need as many allies as possible. And if you scratch our back on this end, we'll scratch your back on the other. And, and, and that's something that's starting to cross Judas's mind. Should we seek some kind of an alliance with Rome? But he didn't live to be able to make it. Uh, later on in 1 Maccabees 9, in a certain battle, Judas also fell. And the rest fled. Then Jonathan and Simon, those are two of his remaining brothers, they took their brother Judas and buried him in the tomb of their ancestors at Modin and wept for him. All Israel made great lamentation for him. They mourned many days and said, How is the mighty fallen, the Savior of Israel? Can you think now what they would be hoping, what Jews would be hoping for when Jesus came among them? A Savior of Israel in the military way? Someone to rise up against Rome and drive them out? Someone with that kind of burning zeal along with other zealots? The verse then ends, Now the rest of the acts of Judas and his wars and the brave deeds that he did and his greatness have not been recorded, but they were very many. It's almost like what John will say of Jesus, that if everything had been written that Jesus, that Jesus said or did, there wouldn't be room on earth for the books that would be written. Now, what happens after the death of Judas? After the death of Mattathias, Judas rises to take his place. And sure enough, after the death of Judas, his brothers rise to continue the rebellion. But it says in 1 Maccabees 9, 23 and 27, after the death of Judas, the renegades emerged in all parts of Israel. All the wrongdoers reappeared. So there was great distress in Israel, such as had not been since the time that prophets ceased to appear among them. That's a fascinating passage, that when prophets were here, we knew who to follow. Not that everyone did, obviously, but there were prophets in the land and lions roaring with the word of God. But what do we do now that this lion, Judah, has been, has been killed in battle? What do we do now? Well, unfortunately, all these wrongdoers, all these renegades come back and the brothers, thankfully, rise up against them. Judas's brother, Jonathan, ends up writing a letter to the Spartans asking for help, 
Remember, Rome has entered into the scene, and now he's reaching out to the Spartans saying, will you come make an alliance with us? In 1 Maccabees 12, 9 and 10, he writes, Therefore, though we have no need of these things, and this is really interesting, we're seeking your help, even though we don't need it. We, we know that there's more important things out there than armed allies. But just in case, it's nice to have a backup plan. But he says, though we have no need of these things, since we have as encouragement the holy books that are in our hands, we have undertaken to send to renew our family ties and friendship with you, so that we may not become estranged from you, for considerable time has passed since you sent your letter to us. We're just trying to keep all our options open. Uh, and maintain some good foreign relations with people that might eventually need to come to our rescue. But in the meantime, I love what he says. We have encouragement in the holy books. Who did Mattathias turn to? Who did Judas turn to? They turned to Old Testament scripture and saw the hand of God running throughout their people's history. It's one of the things I loved learning from your, your comments from last week's video. I asked you, some, what were some of your takeaways from Old Testament? What would you put in your Ark of the Covenant to remember? And many of you said, there's a God who keeps his word. There's a God who honors covenant and is there for his people. And he'll be there for me. That's exactly what the, the Maccabees, what this family is placing their faith in as well. Later in the same letter to the Spartans, Jonathan says this, We rejoice in your glory, but as for ourselves, many trials and many wars have encircled us. The kings around us have waged war against us. We were unwilling to annoy you and our other allies and friends with these wars, for we have the help that comes from heaven for our aid. And so we were delivered from our enemies and our enemies were humbled. <laughs> Again, it's... Why didn't we, you can picture the Spartans? Why didn't you ask us to come earlier? We would have come to your to your aid. Well, we didn't want to inconvenience you. We didn't want to bother you with this empire that was bearing down upon us. Really? What gave you the hope or the faith that you could overcome them? Well, that's exactly it. Hope and faith in a God of deliverance. We had faith in the help that comes from heaven. And so can we. Now, sadly, Jonathan is killed in battle. And the mantle then passes to the last remaining brother, whose name is Simon. This is a family of martyrs from Mattathias all the way down. And Simon is a, what's amazing about it is every brother is equally amazing. Okay? Judah seems to get all the, the, the reputation because of the hammer nickname. But every one of them was an incredible leader. And sure enough, Simon rallies the troops with words like these. 1 Maccabees 13, 3-5. You yourselves know... What great things my brothers and I and the house of my father have done for the laws and the sanctuary. It's our lifestyle we're trying to defend. It's the house of God we're trying to protect. You know what we've done for that. You know also the wars and the difficulties that my brothers and I have seen. By reason of this, all my brothers have perished for the sake of Israel, and I alone am left. Can you hear Moroni saying something similar at the end of the Book of Mormon? It's only me. That's all that's left. And now, Simon concludes, far be it from me to spare my life in any time of distress, for I am not better than my brothers. On the other hand, he wasn't worse than his brothers either. He was on, on par with them. He was an, an equal. 
in putting God first above all things, especially above his own safety and self-security. Amazing family. I hope that we can be families like that in Israel as well. In 1 Maccabees 13, 7, with words like that, how will the people respond? The spirit of the people was rekindled when they heard these words. And they answered in a loud voice, You are our leader in place of Judas and your brother Jonathan. Fight our battles, and all that you say to us, we will do. Do we have the faith and faithfulness to say something similar to the leaders God has placed before us? Prophets and apostles that are like this family of faith, rallying the troops, calling us to courage and to covenant. Courage, brethren, and forward, not backward, on, on to the victory, as Joseph Smith once said. To think of a President Nelson who's not one whit behind his predecessors. These brothers in arms that are trying to help inspire us to engage in the cause of Christ and the cause of covenant. We are living in our own intertestamental period, in a way. The Greek Empire is bearing down upon us. Will we rededicate ourselves? Will we maintain our true identity as children of God and children of the covenant and disciples of Jesus Christ? in the face of a world that wants to Hellenize us, that wants to make us just like everybody else. Beware of the story of Samson, that when covenants are broken, we lose our spiritual strength and end up no different from anyone else. I am grateful for people, heroes and heroines in the book of Maccabees. I'm grateful for examples in the intertestamental period that would inspire Apostles in the time of Jesus to put the kingdom of God first and not worry about their own safety or security. We have among those original apostles a band of brothers that became martyrs to the faith because of their courage and their commitment to those covenants. And I pray that we can become more like them. I'll end this portion with one last verse from 1 Maccabees, chapter 14, verse 41. It's interesting what is, what's described here. The Jews and their priest have resolved that Simon should be their leader and high priest forever. So yes, you've, you are part of that family of faith. You're the last remaining brother, and we accept your leadership. We will follow you into the fray. And so they did. But notice how the verse ends. You will be our leader and our high priest forever, until a trustworthy prophet should arise. Even among them, there was still hope that prophets would return to the land. A prophet to whom God could reveal his secrets. A prophet like unto Moses, or Elijah, or Elisha, or Isaiah, or any of the above, to go back to the glory days of Israelite history when prophets were speaking the word of God. And that's what they were still holding out hope for. A trustworthy prophet should arise. Well, give it time, Maccabees. This period of Maccabean control, they call it the Hasmonean dynasty. And when it finally came to its close, as two brothers started fighting over the crown, instead of fighting the enemies the way their ancestors had, then Rome has to step in. 
By then, Rome had overcome the Greek Empire, defeated both the Seleucids in the north and the Ptolemies in the south and everything in between and were running the show. And they sent a general, Pompey, into Judea to quell whatever problems they were finding there. They eventually set up well, kind of a puppet government there, still under Roman supervision, but put a man there in charge named Herod, who intended to become Herod the Great. Herod himself had some connections to Julius Caesar, so he was in with the Roman elite. He was an Edomian by birth, and that means an Edomite. There's some bad blood between Israelites and Edomites, if you remember our Old Testament study. Uh, but he's a convert to Judaism, at least maybe he's sincere, I don't know. The Jews didn't know. But he's now in charge. And the page finally turns 400 years in that one page between Malachi and Matthew. And guess what comes next? A trustworthy prophet has arisen. In fact, far more than a prophet, but the literal son of God. I look forward to a year of New Testament study with you. I hope that today, despite it being so historical and apocryphal rather than canonical in the New Testament, laid a foundation for all that will follow. We'll, there'll be some times where we need to do a quick Old Testament flashback. You can either go back and rewatch 200 hours worth, or I'll just jog your memory so that we can understand where Samaritans come from or where, where Pharisees and Sadducees are dividing on certain issues. We can see priests and Levites and high priests and how they got into that position when they, they didn't deserve it. But more than anything, as we turn from Old Testament to New, we will see the fulfillment of every messianic prophecy as a meek Messiah comes onto the scene. Not a Mattathias or a Judah Maccabee as far as military might is concerned, but the Lamb of God who would gently and meekly come to the slaughter and be sacrificed for our sins. I testify of him. And in all the pages that we will study for the remainder of this year, I pray that we can come to see him for who he is. Now, if I could say one last thing with the help of the Maccabees before we leave them all behind. Two last verses that I find fascinating, especially on the heels of a lesson that was so historical. Okay, Second Maccabees chapter 2, verse 23 to 26. All this, which has been set forth by Jason of Cyrene in five volumes, we shall attempt to condense into a single book. So the writers or editors of Maccabees are taking all kinds of information. They had five volumes worth, and they're going to try to condense it down. Just give you one book, the one book called Second Maccabees. For considering the flood of statistics involved and the difficulty there is for those who wish to enter upon the narratives of history because of the mass of material, we have aimed to please those who wish to read, to make it easy for those who are inclined to memorize, and to profit all readers. For us who have undertaken the toil of abbreviating, it is no light matter, but calls for sweat and loss of sleep. As a historian myself, as a teacher myself, I had to smile at that scripture. I do hope that the time and toil and sweat and loss of sleep on all of our parts 
will be worth it. <laughs> will be well worth it. In what I'll do for the remainder of this year, I will aim to please those who wish to read the New Testament. I will hope to make it easy for those that are trying to memorize powerful principles by teaching them with analogies and metaphors and examples. And I, I promise to do my very best to convey, I know I can't do justice to the New Testament. I don't know if anyone can, but I'll do my best to rely on the Spirit of God to breathe life into this set of scriptures. I pray that it will profit all readers and all listeners and all watchers, all of us, as we come to know the Savior. And then one last thing by way of excusing my own inadequacy. Again from 2 Maccabees, chapter 15, verse 38. The writer says in conclusion of his book, If it is well told and to the point, that is what I myself desired. If it is poorly done and mediocre, well, that was the best I could do. <laughs> That's a great admission on the part of anyone who's inadequate to do a task that is meant to be as divine as God himself. I will try to make this well told. I can't promise it will always be to the point because you know how long-winded I can be. If these lessons end up being poorly done and merely mediocre, please know it was the best I could do. And I offer my best to you in gratitude for your desire to learn the things of God. More importantly, I offer my best to God and give Him all the glory. I have come to know Him through the pages of Scripture, and I pray I can do justice to, to who He is and what He's done and what He continues to do in the lives of each of us. The Savior lives. He will live on the pages that we are about to study. So please come back next week with sleeves rolled up and shoes off and scriptures open, ready to come to know the Savior of the world.